because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. This is a bonus episode of the show where instead of me interviewing somebody else, I am being interviewed by somebody else. The genesis of this was that Senator Malcolm Roberts, so a politician in Australia or, um, who used to be a senator there, he is doing a kind of research project to educate uh, different politicians and other people in Australia about what he regards as the truth in terms of energy and climate issues. Uh, he and I, incidentally, you'll see in the interview, we don't always agree on every uh, every technicality, particularly on all the things about climate science, uh, but we're generally aligned in terms of certainly where we think policy should go. And he thought my book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, was very valuable and that Australian politicians and public should hear about it. And I said, okay, great, let's do it. And he ended up asking just a great variety of questions that elicited, I think, some of my best answers. And in part because the questions were good and in part because I've really been in full-scale editing mode of the moral case for fossil fuels 2.0. So I just feel like I'm really on top of issues right now, even, you know, even more than I, I'm uh, more than I used to be. So I really enjoyed it. I think that you'll pick up a bunch of new points that I've never covered or a bunch of ways of explaining things that I've never used in the past. And I really hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, You'll see Malcolm Roberts, Senator Malcolm Roberts from Australia, interviewing me about the moral case for fossil fuels and tons of associated issues. Hi, I'm Senator Malcolm Roberts, and I'm in Brisbane, Queensland, Australia, and I'm with the real dynamo here this morning with uh, in Alex Epstein. Now, Alex has got a, an undergraduate degree in philosophy. He actually started studying philosophy uh, in, in high school, but he's got an undergraduate degree from the acclaimed Duke University. Um, he then went on further in philosophy. A lot of it is self-taught, which means this guy knows what he's doing. He, he's educated himself. Um, he's spoken at leading universities. He's debated uh, people who, uh, across many organizations. He's appeared in Fortune 500 companies. He's testified to the US Senate. Um, but look, the most important qualification I can give this man is that he uses his brain. He thinks critically. And I've read his book. I don't know if he's written more books, but the Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. It's a New York Times bestseller, 80,000 copies. So let's. this guy will sell himself, and I'm not talking about selling as in marketing. This guy, you, you, just, you just listen to him. So let me start by saying, Alex, I'm very proud of being a human, and as someone who has worked in the coal industry, I'm very proud to have provided hydrocarbon fuels to Australia and for export. Should I be proud? Yeah, but I think it's notable that it's very unusual. Both of those are very unusual. So it's very, very unusual right now for people to say, I'm proud to be a human and I'm proud to be involved in coal. And I think that we should definitely be proud of both for the same basic reason. And so there's a question of what, what makes you proud in life? And that really depends on your view of morality, on what's good. We tend to be proud of things that are aspirational, that are ideal. And for me, there's nothing more aspirational than doing things that improve the lives of billions of people and you know that allow them to live longer, happier, healthier, more opportunity-filled lives. If, if you do something 
that allows a lot of people to have a better life, even just one person, you know, that's a lot. But if you do something that allows a lot of people to have a better life, then that is something that if you care about human life, you should be proud of. And if you look at the perspective of the human race, look at how much better life has gotten in the last 200 years. Today, we hear that life is getting worse and worse, but overall life is getting much, much better. Uh, I use this statistic when I was born in 1980, 42% of the world lived on less than $2 a day. Like think about it, less than $2 a day, and that's adjusted for inflation. And now it's less than 10%. So something even in the last 40 years, what the human race has done to improve the condition of the average human being is incredible. And if you think about it from the perspective of the planet, never has the planet been such a human-friendly place. So we can talk about, oh, what ways, what have we done badly in terms of the planet? But overall, this world is an incredible place to live. And then that goes to coal. Why is it an incredible place to live? And we'll talk about this more. But I think if you look at coal, oil, natural gas, these are part of a phenomenon of human beings being able to use machines to improve their lives. Human beings are naturally very weak. The natural environment is, is very inhospitable to us. It's very dangerous and it's quite deficient in the things we need like food, clothing, shelter. And so we need to be productive, but naturally we're very weak. And so what we need to do is we need to harness machines to do vastly more physical work than we can do ourselves and to do vastly more types of work, things like digital you know, computer work, which obviously we can't do with our own bodies. And so what we've done is we've figured out how to use machines to make our lives much better, but those machines require food. And what coal, oil, and gas are is those are machine food. And what the fossil fuel industry has done is they've produced the world's most, the, the most affordable machine food for the most people. And that's a huge achievement because it's allowed billions of people to have the miracle of machine power to improve their lives versus the natural state where people are mostly relying on manual labor and suffering. And yet there are still billion, 3 billion people in the world basically who are living manual labor lives. And I say we need more coal, oil, natural gas, or something that's as cost effective for them. So I think the world needs more energy, not less, to be a much better place. And I believe the economics show that for the foreseeable future, that means more fossil fuels, not less. Okay, thank you. Now, pardon my ignorance here, but I should know this figure and I don't. When did humans first appear? Or when are we thought to have appeared? I mean, it just depends on how you define it, but you could just say like 100,000 years, 200,000 years. Okay. So... 100,000, 200,000 years, we plotted along, vulnerable to nature and, and, and really susceptible to bacteria, bugs, viruses, all kinds of things. And, and we were eaten, we were ravaged, we lived in fear of famine, drought. Na Mother Nature was very, very cruel. Uh, and and that, that's, that's to be expected. But we have got a good brain and we use that brain. And uh, could you imagine anyone just 200 years ago thinking how far we've come in the last 170 years. That's, that's just, could anyone back 200 years ago have foreseen where we are today? No, and I, and I think it's particularly worth asking that question from the perspective of environment, because I, I, so part of my philosophy background is I think of environment in a different way than we're taught to. I think more of a way that people used to. I think people used to think of environment in terms from a human perspective. So they think of the world as a human environment. How good is the world as a place to live for human beings? And so part of that is, you know, things like trees and animals and stuff. But you're thinking of it all from the perspective of 
is this good? Like, is this healthy for me? You know, are the animals going to kill me or can I harness them or can I live peacefully with them? But you're thinking of the whole world in terms of a human environment. And part of that is you realize that because the world is so inhospitable naturally, you have to produce a much better human environment. You have to drain swamps. You have to build factories to produce goods. You have to build farms. You have to do all of these different things. And if you had taken someone from 200 years ago and you said to them, you brought them I mean, I live, I guess, in a particularly nice environment. I live in Laguna Beach, California. But let's just say you brought them to just a normal American city. And you said to them, who has a better environment, this city or you? Back then, they would not even consider that uh, a question, you know, because they would just say, like, what, what do you mean, which is a better environment? It's like, I couldn't get clean water where I lived, you know, we'd have a brook and it'd be contaminated by animals. We get sick from it. We have to spend hours a day going to it. And here I just turn on a faucet and my environment gives me clean water or the air. We're breathing smoke. We need, of course we need to, because the world is too cold for most people, despite obsession with warming being bad. So of course we need heat, but how are we going to get heat? We need to burn things, right? And so we, and we don't have a way of burning them without inhaling a whole bunch of smoke. And yet you guys, seem to get heat and everything else, and you're not inhaling a whole bunch of smoke uh, all the time or anything resembling that. And you just take like animals, like animals are no longer a threat. You can enjoy animals. Like you can go on a safari. How many people were going on a safari uh, 200 years ago, right? I mean, all those things would have, uh, would have terrified them. And then just the abundance of food, uh, just we can get, we, you know, we almost all of us in the, what I would call the empowered world can afford healthy food. So if you just, I want to emphasize I don't just draw a distinction between like human well-being and the environment. I think of the environment from the perspective of human well-being. So if you look at the overall world we live in, again, it's not that everything we've done has been perfect, but overall we've made the world a much better place for human beings to live. And any no sane person or even insane person from 200 years ago could dispute that. But today we can because we're taught to take for granted all of the environmental improvements were made and that we've made, and we're taught to fixate on all the negatives, including many imaginary or exaggerated negatives. Okay, so um, it leads into my, into my second question, third question is the single greatest factor, and I've been saying this for years, the single greatest factor for protecting the natural environment, we'll come back to your morality argument, which I happen to agree with, but the single greatest factor for protecting the natural environment and humanity now and over the last 170 years of our industrialization is hydrocarbon fuels. Is that correct? Um, I think so. But it, it, you know, you said we'll come back to my morality. But just so when we're talking about the natural environment, we're always talking about the parts of the natural environment that we like. Because mosquitoes are part of the natural environment, right? Do we want to protect them? Do we want to protect their swamps? So even when people talk about nature, they're implicitly looking at it from a human perspective. It's something they want to enjoy or even something to be around if it's some positive ecosystem relationship. It has to be, we're not just protecting the existing order, whether it's positive or negative. We're, we want to protect or even enhance the most beneficial parts of nature so that we have the, the best relationship. But if, if you think about, yeah, the desirable parts of the natural world, like beautiful trees and clean oceans and clean rivers. And I mean, I, I have, I'm, I'd say an unusually kind of nature person in terms of how much time I like to spend outdoors, how much time I spend in the, I mean, certainly almost more than any environmentalist, so-called environmentalist uh, I've ever met. But it's it's just... 
so but if you look at hydrocarbons then so what we what we've seen then is we have we have more prosperity in terms of things like buildings and farms and those can but also we have more of an ability to enjoy the natural world including to preserve the parts of it we care about and so why is that and the fundamental reason is we don't need the natural world as much for our survival people in the past needed to consume the natural world around them even the most beautiful parts of the natural world because they needed it for the basic necessities they needed it for food they needed it for warmth they need, you know, need to cut down trees for warmth and for food in terms of um, in terms of cooking and they needed to in some cases destroy it because they couldn't really protect themselves against it so they had to have quite an adversarial relationship to what we think of as the natural world but the more you can produce what you need without consuming those things, the more you can afford to preserve them. And what hydrocarbons did is it took our basic source of machine food, it took it from wood and trees and just taking what's available from the natural environment. It allowed us to take something underground that was otherwise completely useless and far more plentiful in terms of coal, oil, and gas. And these are just materials that are derived from ancient dead life, like plants and plankton, and they weren't doing anything for anyone. And we've discovered, wow, they have these properties where they, they're very compressed plants or very compressed life in effect. So they, they're actually much more efficient to burn than trees, but you don't have to cut down any trees to get them. You don't have to affect your natural environment that much. You just go underground, which is you know much more efficient from that perspective than cutting down a whole bunch of trees. And so it's just this amazing thing where we could support ourselves with our machine food. And we need a lot of machine food where it didn't rely on the natural environment. And so that's that's why I think it's so, from that perspective, as well as so many others, it's been so beneficial. So if I think of myself in terms of what a whale would think or a tree would think, back in 170 years ago, uh, we needed, as you said, we like, we like uh, fuel to keep ourselves warm for our cooking, for our lighting. So 170 years ago, we would have gone and killed whales to get the whale oil so we could see yeah. books that we could read. We would have gone and chopped down trees to get the wood for our cooking and for our heating. And that's why I say looking at it from looking at the human race from a whale's perspective or a forest perspective, I am so grateful for coal, oil and natural gas because they're no longer chopping me down. They're using this, this um, stored solar energy uh, and, and that's what it basically amounts to. And they're using it as a very high density um, source of energy. Wood is very low density. So we have to burn a lot of it to get the same heating value. Coal, oil, and natural gas, much higher density, much more efficient. And they don't have to kill me as a whale or kill me as a tree now. So that's why one of the things that I say. The other thing is that the thing that's enabled humans to develop is a very simple chain of logic. It says basically that to create wealth, we need to increase our productivity. We can do that by exploiting other people, exploiting animals, or we can do it by using machines. And so when we use machines to increase our productivity, our wealth increases. So we need then energy to power those machines. And one of the greatest factors, that, that one of the greatest factors in the industrialization of humanity has been the ever decreasing price in real terms after inflation of energy until 20 years ago in, in the West. So as that energy 
prices decreased, it became more available. That increased our productivity, which increased our wealth. And sure, the wealthy got wealthier, but everyone got wealthier and everyone became safer and, and, and more comfortable. So really, this, that, that single greatest factor is cheap energy. And that's what coal, oil and natural gas did. It drove down the real price of energy. Is that correct? Yeah, and I think it's really worth emphasizing that, you know, what people who used to, the closest people historically to living the way that the average person in the wealthy world lives, those were with basically without exception, people who were able to harness the physical work of many other humans. So right. productivity is everything. We, nature doesn't give us that much in terms of the resources we need. And so we need to produce those resources, including we need to produce protection against a lot of the threats that nature gives us. This is just a fact of human nature and human survival. And the fact is that our bodies are not capable of doing enough physical work to make much of a dent productively. So we need more, we need more work, more energy deployed than we as an individual can do. And so that means we need some out, so outside source of energy. And historically, the way people solved that was what a way we would consider very unethical, which is that they harnessed other human beings as a source of energy. Um, they would also try to harness animals and you know try to harness the wind and the water to various degrees, but often they would just harness other human beings if they could get away with it. And human beings are in a, they would use them as like very versatile machines. So you think of even entertainment. It would be the king could have a court jester, right? I mean, that's essentially he's using that person uh, as a machine, but I don't think the jester is volunteering for it in the way that someone would would uh, would do it now. And if you think about Milton Friedman had this great line about how much industrial progress, you know, basically machine productivity has benefited the average person. And he said, you know, the wealthy people who could command a lot of human power, they had they ha didn't have running water in the technical sense, but they had running servants to bring them running water. And I think that's a perfect example where, yeah, if you could somehow deploy and really, in many cases, exploit other human beings to do all of this work for you, then you could live a life somewhat like what we experience today. You know, they could make your clothing, they could heat up your home, but that was exploitative. The only way for everybody to be productive and therefore to flourish, to live to their highest potential, is to get machines to do it. And the more efficiently we can get machines to do our work at the lower cost, the better. And what that means is the more efficiently we can feed the machines, the better. The more efficiently we can produce the machine food, the cheaper the machines are to operate, but also the cheaper the machines are to make. Because every machine is made by other machines that are made by other machines, that are made by machines that do mining and transportation and manufacturing. So when you decrease the price of machine food, you decrease the price of every single productive activity in life, which means you allow people to do more with less time. And if we're talking about pride, what could you be prouder of than allowing human beings to get more out of their very limited time on Earth? There are two, two things that I'd like to mention and get you to build on the second one. The first is just a point that a king 200 years ago would not live as well as someone on welfare in Australia today in terms of longevity, ease of living, health, safety, security, entertainment, um, portability, um, mobility, you name it. Any, any factor you care to name, the only thing that has, improved, has gone down for a king is a king back then could exploit people. 
and he doesn't have that potential now to exploit people except in maybe some totalitarian country. So the other part is that what you're talking about leads to something very dear to my heart, and that is freedom. It's given us freedom of movement, freedom of mobility. I don't just live in my valley in Wales, where my ancestors came from, and work in the coal mine or the, the farm in my valley. I can go across, not just to the next valley, I can go in a jumbo jet and work in San Joaquin Valley. And, and I, can, I can have all kinds of choices. I don't re rely upon the, the, the Lord of the Manor in my valley in Wales to tell me what to do, how much he's going to pay me, how he can exploit me. I can say, no, I've had enough of you. I'm going to San Joaquin Valley in California. I can go anywhere in the world and get a job, basically. And I, so I can choose my boss, which means the boss has less, less um, control over me. So the world of control is starting to disappear. And, and that's, that's due to fossil fuels, hydrocarbon fuels. Yeah, and just one aspect of that, because I, I agree with the basic point totally, but one aspect of that, particularly because people are concerned with the natural environment, is only when you have low-cost machine-powered transportation can you really even think of the planet as your environment. When you think about what was the environment of a person 200 years ago, five-mile radius, 10-mile radius, like the idea of the planet, it just wasn't even a thing. Uh, to, I mean, people you know, didn't even know the world was round, uh, I mean, in part because they just couldn't get anywhere on it. And so now you think about, oh, I care about the Grand Canyon. People who really care about nature versus using it as an excuse to oppose industry, which I think is pretty common, but people who actually care about nature, they're like, oh, I went to the Grand Canyon, I went to Fiji. Like all of those things are based on machine power. And so it's machine power allows you to actually enjoy the natural environment, allows you to protect yourself from it. It allows you to not need to consume it to live uh, because we have machine power that doesn't require it and it allows you to get to it, to enjoy it. And it also frees up the time. And one other point I want to make just in case it occurs to people, because you're talking about, well, a king today cannot live, a king rather 200 years ago cannot live at the same level as a person on welfare today. But I think something people might think about is, well, yeah, okay, but that's just progress, right? That's, a, that's not fossil fuels. That's a whole bunch of other things. Like, for instance, medical advances, right? The, the, the king would have likely died of something, let's say, well before the age of 50, uh, on average, given that. Well, medical science, what does that have to do with fossil fuels? And I think it's, it's really important to see in two crucial ways, how medical progress and everything else that particularly that we don't think of as connected to fossil fuels is. And so one is just that we could really think of three if you talk about the material. So there's the materials of medicine are hugely derived from what we're calling fossil fuels, particularly oil and gas. And so that's one thing that's fascinating to look into is just how many medical supplies are high quality and affordable because they're derived from these really uh, remarkable materials. Uh, but the other two are maybe more important. One is just that the whole world of medicine is a world of machines. You just think about how, how diagnosis is done, how treatment is done, how drugs are manufactured. I mean, just how hospitals, something like 50% of their budget is energy or electricity. It's just some huge, huge thing. So the whole world of medicine is not just a mental world of, oh, we know about medicine. It's a world that requires machine power, that means it must be reliable and it must be low cost enough for people to uh, afford it. In my book, I have a story about a really tragic story about in the country, the Gambia in Africa, where they don't have reliable, low cost electricity 
And so they don't have incubators. And so a premature baby that in the US would be totally fine just, just dies because they cannot have an incubator. I mean, it's, it's that significant. But maybe the most significant, so there's the fossil fuels provide the materials, they provide the machine power of medicine. But the most important and underappreciated thing, I think, is they provide the time. We yes. take for granted that people have time to do to engage in medicine. You think about COVID-19, and there's a lot to say about how that's being conducted. But one thing is we have mil literally millions of people who can think about this issue, who can study it, who can try to come up with different kinds of treatments, who can actually just actively treat people, who can perform different kinds of testing. Just We take it for granted, oh, there are millions of people who can do that. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because we're not spending our time on what people used to spend 80% of their time on or more, which is food production. 80% of people or more used to be farmers. And that meant their whole life was manual labor, just producing enough food to get by to the next day. And then if you talk about getting water and, and um, you know, any kind of shelter, I mean, it's all, it's just their whole life is taken up by the crudest versions of their physical needs. The more machine power you have, the more manual labor you can delegate and the more mental labor you can do. So we have a world in which we have an amazing amount of time to do mental labor, which means we can we can apply existing knowledge to problems, but also we have a lot of time to think about uh, new issues and acquire new knowledge. And you're seeing both of these with the pandemic. We have people who have lots of time to apply knowledge because they're not being farmers, and they have lots of time to think about new knowledge to cure these things. And that's all directly related to fossil fuels, because without the low cost machine food to feed the machines that are doing all the work for us, including the food production, we would not have the time to treat uh, medical issues and to innovate in medicine. Right. And, and um, you know, we started to specialize as humans in, into various uh, professions or occupations well before hydrocarbon fuels. And people might know now that I don't use the term fossil fuels. Um, because it's, it's been coined as a, as a derogatory term by mm -hmm. the climate, climate uh, alarmists. But I understand why you use it, because you've got to connect and, and you want to get your message out. So I'm not critical of, of you at all for using the word fossil fuels. I'm trying to re-educate people about hydrocarbons. They're, they're combinations of hydrogen atoms and carbon Yeah, atoms. I agree. It's a better yeah. term. Yeah. It's a better so term. anyway, um, the specialization of humans you know, into some people who started making saddles, some people who started to farm, some people who became priests, some people who became um, bakers, it was, was well before hydrocarbon fuels were even dreamt of. So we're not claiming credit for that. But what has happened is that those specializations have been magnified dramatically, exponentially, because a farmer was able to get hold of a hydrocarbon powered uh, tractor, and he could do far more work than he could by flogging his oxen or his beef or his, his cow with a whip and, and being cruel and exhausting yeah. them. Far more than, a, than a, a, uh, an exploiter could do by exploiting slaves, because slaves are inherently weak compared to a machine. And so we had that dramatic increase in leverage of energy. That's what, that's, and that drove that specialization, which drove enormous time savings, which gave people the opportunity to research. And so now we have, um, we have occupations that have been created in the last 20 years that people before that couldn't even dream of. So we're having that specialization. It's all due to the efficiency of hydrocarbon energy.
Yeah, I mean, I would think of it as you could think of it as a difference in degree, but it's almost you could really think of it as a difference in kind because the gap is so big. Even if you just take England, so one of the world's wealthiest places 200 years ago, you know, the average person spent something like 80 cents on the dollar on food. But what does that mean? If you're spending 80 cents of, of, of the money you make on food, that means 80% of human time is going into food production. And then if you think of today, I mean, we have more knowledge about food, but imagine we don't have any machine power at all, 8 billion people. Like we're farming in a lot of places that people could not farm with manual labor. Like it's, you know, feeding 8 billion people without machines. I mean, who knows how much of our time uh, that, you know, that would take. So it, it is, it's, it's not that fossil fuels are the only cause of anything good in the world or even that reliable low cost energy is the only cause, but it is a fundamental cause, which means that everything depends on it in, in a very deep cause and effect way. And what that means is if you change it or if you remove it, so if you double the price of energy and when, the kind of schemes we're talking about in terms of trying to replace fossil fuels with unreliable solar and wind, I mean, that's much worse than a doubling. Nobody has even done it. So we don't even know, but let's just say conservatively multiplying it by 10, like making energy 10 times more expensive. What does that do to everything in the economy? What does that do to the aspirations of 3 billion people who don't even have energy now? It just, I mean, it makes it one of the most horrific things imaginable, which is 8 billion people living in a natural world. You do not want 8 billion people living in a natural world. It was hard enough for 500 million human beings to live in a natural world. But 8 billion people, that is a totally unnatural phenomenon that is supported by low-cost machine power. And when people talk about ecosystems being delicate, that's the delicate ecosystem right there, is the machine-powered world that supports 8 billion people. And if those machines can't eat, they're scrap metal, and sooner or later, we can't eat. Right, and, and that brings us to another factor of, of hydrocarbon fuels being so such a blessing to the environment because... Um, we, we live in a city of one and a half billion, but there are New Yorkers living in cities of 20, billion, 20 million people. And so what just think of the, the, um, the sewage that comes out of 1.5 million people and how that gets treated and how we can call on water. Now, if we were living without the benefit of hydrocarbon fuels, we would be, pardon the French, shitting in the creek. And that oh, yeah. creek the water downstream for someone else, that's be their water supply. So we'd have more disease. But even if we forget about the disease factor, I don't particularly like creeks that someone shit in. So what we need to do is clean up the creeks. And we can have now 1.5 million people in our city, Los Angeles, 20 plus million near you. And, and you can have a pristine environment nearby because Everything we touch, everything that, that we touch, not just directly, but indirectly through our machines, is now using coal because it's made out of a steel. So the plough that the farmer uses to get the food is made out of steel. The tractor is, is powered by hydrocarbons as well as being made out of coal. We then have the, the, the harvesting. We then have the transport. We then have the processing. We then have the distribution. We then have the electricity that powers it all. All of that is touched by coal. So everything we do, so if anyone complains about coal, then I'm going to say to them, they're going to starve without coal. And they're going to live a miserable life in the dark. And people don't realize that it's not just power stations that use coal, it's blast furnaces and steel mills that use coal. 
And so that touches everything. The building we live in was cut down, made of trees was cut down, that were cut down with steel saws that were powered by hydrocarbons. So everything we do to make our lives comfortable and easy is a hydrocarbon fuel. So um, that rate of human progress over the last 170 years is something you talk about. It's been exponential. And you're saying, let's not stop doing this. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that, yeah, this is a really important point that, and this is part of the idea that, I mean, maybe the most important fact in the world is how good the world is today relative to any point in history and also how fast it's been improving. Because if you recognize those two facts, how good the world is today and how fast it's been improving, then you're gonna be really preoccupied with at least two questions and they're very related. One is how did this happen? And two, how can we continue it? Versus if you think that the world today is worse than it used to be, and getting worse, you won't be very interested in that. Your whole thing will be, oh, the system is broken. We have to change the system, which is a you know wide sentiment. And I'm all for improving the system. We have to recognize the system. I think there are lots of things wrong with the way systems function today, including a lot of anti-freedom policies. But you have to recognize the existing system is, in terms of its results, the best system that has ever existed. So if you're going to improve it, you really need to understand what has made it amazing and then try to double down on that, but the idea of, oh, some new person is gonna come along and scrap the whole thing and then come up with something totally new, which you're hearing about, like we need a restart of capitalism. Like I only trust anyone who's talking about that at all if they recognize how good the world is today. And one of the huge problems you had, you know, in advance of right before this call, you and I were talking about like, what's my background and credentials and stuff. And I, you know, I talk about, like, I consider myself self-taught and I went to a prestigious American university for undergrad, but I don't think I learned particularly much there. I had one or two really good uh, teachers. But if you look at what people learn at prestigious schools, fundamentally, if you consider the state of the world and its progress as the most important fact in the world, people at elite universities learn the opposite. They learn that the world is bad and getting worse. And evidence of this is Oxford University did a survey of college, I believe it was college-educated Europeans, a pretty wide survey. And they asked just one question. In the last, I think it was 30 years, has extreme poverty, so that's people living $2 or less a day, I mentioned earlier, has that gotten better? Has it stayed the same? Or has it gotten worse? And I'm pretty sure the stats are 55% of college-educated European adults said extreme poverty has gotten worse. I mentioned it's improved at a record rate. If you take 40 years ago, it's gone from you know 42% to 10. I think 30 years ago might've been 35% or 33%. So it's been the most biggest improvement in human history. 55% think it's gotten worse and 33% said it stayed the same and only 12% said it's getting better. And these are supposedly educated people. You think about how many parents spent so much of their lives working so hard, trying to be a good parent, trying to save up money to send them to any school, you know, let alone Harvard or Yale or something. And that what they got is a kid who thinks that the best world in history is bad and getting worse. So, I mean, and, and you really have to ask what the hell is going on with the intellectual leaders of a world that 
are saying that the world is getting worse, and this relates a lot to the issue of climate, which I hope we get to talk about, at least from a human perspective, which is my perspective in terms of the livability of the climate. I'm concerned with the livability of it, not is it one degree warmer or cooler or that kind of thing. Like We have people telling us that we live, that climate change has made our climate very dangerous. Like That is empirically false. You could say you could say logically, hypothetically, you could say climate will become more dangerous in the future. But as an empirical fact, if you look at the International Disaster Database, any, any database at all of how many people die from climate-related causes, so that would be storms, floods, extreme heat, extreme cold, wildfires, any database you would ever look at will show there has been a dramatic decline in climate-related deaths over the last 100 years. Years. I mean, if you take one example in the 1930s, so about 100 years ago, you know, when we start having good data, there were years where adjusted for population, 10 million people died of a climate-related cause, mostly drought, I believe. Uh, latest data I saw, 2018, 6,646 people in a world of almost 8 billion. So we've gone from 10 million to 6,600. 46. So what we've done is we've taken an incredibly dangerous climate and we've made it unnaturally safe. And again, the, the hero is really machine power. We've used machines to produce a world that's incredibly durable in terms of climate so we can protect ourselves from these uh, disasters. And it gives us a huge amount of control over our local climate and, you know, with heating and air conditioning and it, all kinds of things. Drought relief depends on machine power. Weather forecasting depends on machine power. So if you just take this issue, we're all taught that climate is bad and getting worse. And yet climate from a human perspective is safer than ever by far. So anyone, I have a line that I like to use, which is I don't trust anyone to predict the future who can't predict the present. So if somebody says climate is going to be a disaster in the future and they think climate is a disaster today, they are ignorant or worse. And I think the or worse we can talk about, but the only explanation of how this is possible for the people who have any familiarity with the facts is that they are not judging the earth or evaluating the earth by a human standard or the climate in this case. Because if you have a human perspective on climate livability, you have to admit it's gotten much better. But if you think that it's wrong for human beings to have any impact on the climate. And if we have any impact, that means it's a bad climate. Then you think the climate is worse. And that's the only explanation of climate, that, like climate catastrophe movement thinking today's climate is bad, is they think it's bad because they think we've changed it some. And so it's really a religion. It's really a religion that says that to be good is to not change nature. That's their standard. That's their goal is unchanged nature. And my goal is human flourishing. I want humans to live to their highest potential. So if we make the earth amazing with machine power and it leads to a little warming, which by the way is generally desirable for people, and by the way it also leads to greening of plants, if we change the earth in that way along with all the positive ways that our machines change the earth using fossil fuels, I think that's a better earth because I care about humans. But if you think it's bad for human beings to change anything, you're going to think it's what we've done is bad, even though 8 billion people can live better lives than ever. That's the only explanation of our whole establishment acting like climate is bad and the world is bad, is they are anti-human. They don't judge the world by a human standard. There's no other explanation that I've 
uh, ever heard. So most of you watching this, you won't know all the facts. Like you'll probably be in the position like I was when I was at Duke of the people from the Oxford survey who think, oh, the world is getting worse. I hear it all the time, the news makes. But once you know the facts about the world, you have to know that there's something anti-human about the people who are telling you that it's bad and getting worse. Exactly, and, and I'll just mention a point here to, to, to back you up before going on further on the questions, and we'll come back to the morality uh, later on. And the moral case for hydrocarbons is actually a moral case for the environment, so which we can get onto. The three greatest threats to the environment, in my opinion, are war. I've never seen anyone have an environmental impact statement before declaring war. The second one is ignorance, sheer ignorance. They're actually trying to protect the environment, but they're harming the environment because they don't understand it, because they haven't had the, they haven't had the, the courage and the strength to do the research to understand what they're doing. And the third one is poverty, because we get back to the point where people, if they're so poor, they're scratching for their next meal, they're going to shit in the creek because there's nothing else they can do. And I'm not going to condemn them for that. That's just a fact. So the three greatest the three greatest threats to the environment are war, ignorance, and poverty. But let's let's celebrate. And all of those are alleviated by fossil fueled machines, right? I mean, they make us non they make us non poor by making us productive. They give us time to educate ourselves, and uh, oh, oh, and they make us less likely to declare war when we can actually when everyone can actually feed themselves and live in harmony. They don't feel compelled to go to war, you know two unproductive places, it's really easy to go to war. They're, it's not the only cause, but it's a major thing. Like it's easy to go to war if you feel like you can't support yourself by exploiting other people. That's the same thing as the kings, right? If they wanna live at a decent level, they need to exploit other people. In a world where machines do work for you, nobody needs to be exploited. In fact, you benefit by you all collaborate to create these machines and you spend your time thinking about how to make them better and better. And so mutual harmony is possible. So just, I want to keep stressing that fossil fueled machines, fossil fuel powered machines, they make the world so good. And, and the other point uh, I just raised was ignorance. Ignorance is- Oh, I said with education, that gives you well. time. You've already covered that. And so hydrocarbon fuels touch every minute of our lives, I just made these notes, and make people's lives easier, safer, happier, healthier, more productive, wealthier, more secure, more comfortable and so on it goes. Yeah, I mean, with happier, I think it's important that they give you the opportunity. So people can say, I mean, there, there are criticisms people can make of, the, of life today. And I'm sympathetic if people say, for instance, oh, people are on their phone too much. Yeah, that I think that's true. You know, people get like the fact that we have opportunity. I mean, productivity, your productive ability, a higher productive ability, what it really gives you is the opportunity. You can screw it up, but it gives you the opportunity to live a much better life. So you can use that productive ability, making sure that it, you use the time it creates to connect with people. And if, you, if you're if you into nature like I am, to enjoy nature and to pursue hobbies that are meaningful and to take a job that's meaningful, like everyone has these opportunities. I think we as a society don't appreciate the opportunity enough and we often squander it. But the key is that it gives you the opportunity to be happy. And if you want to compare the opportunity that somebody today has to be happy with the opportunity of somebody 200 years ago or somebody in a poor village somewhere, there is no comparison whatsoever. So when people say, oh, well, we're so wealthy, but are we happy? Well, I think some of us uh, are. I really enjoy living in this world. But if some people aren't, like the solution is not to take away their opportunity. It's to educate them about how to use it better. Just like if I'm not using my money well, you still shouldn't steal 90% of it. 
you can help me use the money better. But to say, oh, I'm going to help you by taking away your money and your money is really your ability to produce outcomes. So energy and money are very, very energy and productivity and money. They're all very, very, they're all very basic human currencies because they're currencies of opportunity to make the most out of your time on earth and to make more time on earth to make the most of. And what you're, what you're saying there implicitly is choice. And that's what we, you mentioned a little while ago. Mm -hmm. And I emphasize freedom. When you have, freedom from the time that these machines have created for us or, or freed up for us, they haven't created the time, but they've freed up for us. Then we have choice. And then we have choice about income. We have choice about occupation. We have choice about all kinds of things and how we use that time that we're freed up. So if, if I want to get obsessed with this and bury it, bury in it, bury my life in it, well, so be it. That might give, cause me misery, but it's my choice. At least now yeah. I'm doing that instead of scratching around trying to eke out an existence for my family. Which yeah. and then die at an early age. So, I want to want to um, come to something else too. Humans, in my opinion, show that we have enormous ingrained ingrained care. Now, sure, there are people who will take advantage of us. We've had our Hitlers, we've had our despots, we've had our ignorant people, but um, and the control freaks, and they still plague us now and then. But humans inherently have demonstrated over millennia that we have enormous ingrained care and huge ability to learn and to improve. So that is, we wouldn't be here, you wouldn't be here if someone hadn't cared for you because we are the most vulnerable species on the planet. Uh, we, we're, we're so prone up, up until about the age of 10 and, and then we can survive on our own. But up until then, we, we can't really survive. And, uh, and even at the age of 10, we need the help of a, of a tribe, so to speak. So we, we're very vulnerable. You're only here, I'm only here because our parents cared for us or someone cared for us in our early years. And so that care is what's caused us to survive. And that care is ingrained in us. Now, sure, that the maternal instinct and the paternal instinct is, in, is ingrained in, in bears and, and uh, yeah. wolves and all the rest of it. But in humans, we care about the future of our species. We care about the future of our planet. And there's no other species anywhere on the planet that says what we're doing now by defecating in one area as a tribe of elephants is going to destroy the area. We better stop and move on to somewhere else. No, they just keep doing it. But humans, we go, hang on, this is not productive for us. This is going to make lead to unhappiness. So we will explore why, and then we'll come up with a solution and we'll come up with, with something that will make lives happier because we care. And we care in terms of time looking into the future as well. Isn't that true? Well, but I think it's notable that the other animals, I mean, in terms of the caring, you know, what you could call the just ingrained caring of you know, genetically motivated caring, okay. however you'd want to characterize it, of just the mother, particularly the mother's bond with the child and what a mother of any species will do for their child. That's really a kind of an unbelievable force. But I think yeah. the most notable thing is that when human beings became a uh, politically free, which fundamentally means that coercion was discouraged or eliminated among human uh -oh. beings, we were not allowed to coerce uh, others. Where like you have voluntary, inter you know, all interaction is voluntary. Um, you know, once that starts to happen, um, but and that's very related though to empowerment, where people can use machines to be productive instead of using manual labor. Then what happens is you're you have a unique kind of relationship with the members of your species uh, because it's such a mutually beneficial 
relationship. You can, because of political freedom, if you if there's nothing that you have in common, you can go your separate ways. You don't have to interact with them. But when there is some interest in common, you can work together and you can do this amazing thing called trade. And all of this is amplified just so dramatically uh, by uh, by machine power. And so in that context, when we view other members of our species as as co-creators of of a good life, the more we have that, the more we care about them very legitimately, and I would say selfishly in the best sense of the term, because our our interests are very aligned. But you know, the less free we are, so the more we can arbitrarily coerce each other and, and take advantage of each other, and the less productive we are. So the more that the less we're able to produce what we need and, and really collaborate with others, then you have a lot of adver uh, things are very adversarial. I think it's no accident that if you look at the 19th century, it's one of the most peaceful times because it's got this combination of unprecedented political freedom and increasing uh, machine power, among other benefits of freedom. So I, I think that even today's the level of caring that we have today, if you're calling it that that's that's an unnatural thing if you think of the species as a whole having this kind of alignment the other thing is it's it's very easy to exploit and that's a lot of what's happening in terms of concern with the future and and it's often that people are given these false views about oh if they're too i guess they they too easily believe that something we're doing today is going to make life worse for somebody in the future. <clears throat> Excuse me. I mean, that's really an easy belief. And I think part of it relates to this idea that we're not taught how good the world is today and why it's good, because you recognize that it's good because we're so productive. Then you think that, okay, the more productive we are, uh, the more knowledge we're going to generate, the more resources we're going to generate for future generations. And so the more capable they will be of producing anything they need. And so if you think about something like climate, the most important thing for the future safety of people from climate is not exactly, you know, how many storms there are and what the rainfall patterns are and what the heat and cold are. It's do they have the capability to deal with any climate conditions? And if we give them resources and, you know, in terms of just becoming productive, that leads to more and more resources over time passed on and on. And if we give them knowledge, that's giving them a better future. But today we're taught that, we're basically taught that what makes life good or not is some pristine or optimal planet that we inherited. So the idea is, oh, if we change anything, then the future is going to be terrible. This is the whole basis of, oh, the world's going to end in 12 years. Like if you think that that human survival depends on some optimal state of the planet, then you're going to think that all our productive activity today is bad. But if you recognize there is no optimal state of the planet, the planet is naturally dynamic, it's naturally dangerous, it's naturally deficient. It's a very imperfect planet. It's got a lot of potential, but it, that potential needs to be actualized. If you recognize that, then you recognize that, hey, our productive activities that we're doing today, those are making the future better, just as our ancestors' productive activities made our future better. And as for all the sustainable ancestors we had, they really didn't help me out that much. You know, 50,000 years ago, people lived a sustainable, repetitive life where they didn't really do anything to earth. Like, what the hell did they do for me? I'm mean, not that they were obligated to, but the people I'm grateful to, they're the people who changed the earth, right? They're the people who built the homes and built the machines and freed up the time and discovered the knowledge, started building up a civilization and started building up uh, a, a base of knowledge that then I was so fortunate 
to uh, inherit. And so that's what we need to do more. If we want to be more productive, that's the way to benefit the future. If that's what you're thinking about, not to stop being productive and hope that the planet magically becomes nice and then takes care of the future like some imaginary mother that it's not. Right. And, and that's something you're saying it much more eloquently and more efficiently than I am and more comprehensively than I have been. But what I say to people is we are taught rubbish that it's either civilization or nature. No. If we, um, if we simply focus only on civilization and we, we wreck our natural environment, by natural environment, I mean safe for humans to live, not just the pristine environment. Then if we if we go all out for overdevelopment and all the rest of it, then we destroy our natural environment. Civilization will come to a grinding halt sometime down the road. If we focus entirely on nature, then we don't focus on civilization. So it's not a matter of civilization or nature. It's a matter of to protect nature, we have to become more civilized. That's proven to us over the last 170 years. And the more we protect nature in the sense of creating an environment for humans, the better off our future civilization will be. So nature and civilization work together, not opposed to each other, because we're not separate from nature. We are part of nature and we are part of the natural environment. We're humans. We are part of the natural environment, aren't we? Yeah, but I think it's, it's worth saying what is what policy allows that to happen and, and allows it to happen where there's really... Uh, a harmony, if you're thinking of them as at all separate of civilization and nature. And I think the main thing is property rights, is when individuals who create value, you know, they can own a part of the world, you know, alone or in combination with others, and they can decide with this, with this part of the planet, what is the best use of this part of the planet? And that's determined by their own preferences, but it's also determined by the preferences of others. So with a certain part of the planet, for example, that has a lot of oil underground, most people who own the property will decide, hey, you know what? I can put some sort of rig here for some amount of time, let's say 30 years, if we get oil for 30 years, like I'll put this here and it's not gonna interfere with me too much and I can create tons of value for other people, right? So that part of environment is gonna be preserved. But if let's say there's some super nice place that doesn't have a lot of oil and stuff, then maybe a bunch of people will go buy it and say, yeah, let's preserve this because lots of people will enjoy it. It's, I think it's it's, Property rights are just so unappreciated in terms of how they enable individuals to coexist in harmony with one another and to have a proper pro-human relationship to nature. And right now, unfortunately, when it comes to our relationship to nature, there's virtually no respect for property rights, even in the U.S., which historically has been the best because at least we have underground uh, mineral rights, which most almost no other country has had to their huge detriment. But we, unfortunately, we have a, almost, a, and I mean this technically, like a fascist system when it comes to the relationship to nature, where basically a government, like the EPA or some other entity, can just say, you know what, the muskrat on your property, we think that's important. So you got to leave or you can't do what you want. And there's this real tyranny that happens. I think it's an anti-human view. I think if you care about the muskrat, you go be productive and figure out a way to protect that muskrat yourself. Because otherwise, people don't care about the muskrat. They just want to throttle other people for a whole bunch of reasons. And, and what we have so much in the U.S. is just people who I think have really bad motives in terms of the leaders who, who have a very deep dislike for humans, particularly productive humans. They get carte blanche to just 
interfere with anybody's life. And if you just talk to business people in the US about how they say the Endangered Species Act persecutes them, it is unbelievable. Or we had this, um, it was like some Waters Act in the US that uh, the president, Donald Trump, did a good job of repealing or delimiting. And it was just like, if you had a puddle on your property, basically some eco-fascist could say, yeah, you know what? That's a really important puddle. I guess you can't use it. And that that's, that's not how America became a beautiful place. Uh, you know, it became, becomes a beautiful place, I think, where there's more property rights. And this is maybe my most controversial view because most people think, oh, is a good idea that the government nationalized a third of the land. And I, I don't think so. I uh, think that if we had property rights, we could have a true enjoyment of nature that was actually pro-human. And you think about maybe the biggest victims of this are poorer people, because there are so many nice parts of nature that would be really nice to live in. Um, you know, you might build houses nearby, but you could really enjoy them if they weren't owned by the government. But they're owned by the government, and so that means there's 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 fewer of these really nice places. Uh, for people to live. And so somebody who lives in Malibu, it's easy for them to say, yeah, well, I just bought a $30 million house in Malibu. Oh, and I love this. But that forest 500 miles from me, that's precious. I'm glad the government protects that. But they don't realize the only reason they can enjoy Malibu is because the government didn't, quote, protect their land from development. They gave property rights. So, I mean, this is a long-term focus, but property rights are the key to having a pro-human relationship with the natural world. Yes, exactly. And and what we've seen is that, you know, we, we know that humans care for each other and care for the future of our species and so on. But unfortunately, as you alluded to in the opening comments, there are some humans who try to control others and exploit others. And so we have that, I call it the human condition, that desire in some people, the ego-driven desire to control. And that can get out of control, so to speak. But what we used to do in the past was the tyrants, the fascists, would control others with a rifle, a jackboot, or a tank. Now people control with misinformation and ignorance. And they actually- ignorance. Sorry? And guilt, I would and say. Exactly, yeah, that, that's what I'm talking about, the manipulation. So they fabricate these things for, for creating someone to be feeling guilty about. And then they control people. And one of the fundamental things, I, I always thought that the 20th century was the most productive in terms of uh, improving human human lives. But I've been told by good economists who are friends of mine that no, I was wrong. It was the 19th century that was the most productive. It is also the, the, where the best improvements occurred. It was the 19th century where we really got the in, the improvements starting. And what we've what we can see now is the same people who are trying to control us, control our thinking, can, trying to control our use of energy, trying to control how we live, their second agenda, and it's, it's part of the same agenda, is to control property rights. And when they want to control property, that means stealing your property rights. And, and they, they don't want to compensate you for it. They will steal your property rights. So I'm so, so pleased to hear you talking about property rights because that's fundamental. But the same people who want to steal our energy, steal our productivity, steal our wealth, steal our livelihoods are trying to steal our property rights. And they're doing it in this country all under the guise of climate and all under the, the, the guilt that you talk about. So can we, before exploring these further, can we get back to basics in terms of what are fossil fuels? Now, in, in my view, hydrocarbon fuels, the name says they're combinations of hydrogen atoms and carbon atoms, plus mm -hmm. minor impurities when they're burned. But basically, those impurities these days in cars, 
in, uh, in power stations, in blast furnaces, are removed. So the impurities don't really cause much. They're scrubbed out um, or they, they're taken out chemically. So what's left, Alex, is H2O, because we combine the hydrogen and the, and the carbon with oxygen, and we form H2O, which is water, and carbon dioxide, which is plant food and essential for all life on this planet. So what we've got in, in the use of hydrocarbon fuels is basically producing water and carbon dioxide, which is plant food. I mean, what could be better? Well, there's, I mean, there's the concern about warming. And I think it's important. I think it's important to think about. We could talk about some of the facts surrounding it, but I want to talk about just what is a pro-human way of thinking about this issue before you know the facts. Because I think what's going on in terms of the climate catastrophism, I don't think it's actually really disagreement about science or certainly any fact. I think it's a a very deep anti-human orientation, and it's this idea I keep coming back to the view that changing nature is bad or human impact is, is bad. Because if you look at the situation, if you think about, let's say you learn two facts about CO2, that at least in, that, so it's a, it's a plant growing gas, and it's a fertilizing gas, you know that. And let's say in isolation, at least, uh, it's a warming gas, at least I, I certainly believe it. So it's a warming gas. So it has those two attributes. So you might think, let's say fossil fuels, instead of adding CO2 to the atmosphere, they subtracted CO2 from the atmosphere. So if you just knew, okay, it's a fertilizing gas and a warming gas, and you heard fossil fuels as a side effect or a byproduct, they're sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere, what would be your reaction? I think you'd be pretty afraid. And why would you be afraid? Well, because if you know, well, let's say, let's say starting in the Industrial Revolution, so it's about 270 parts per million, 0.027% of the atmosphere, right? If you start there, and you know, well, plant significant plant death is going to start the lower you get. And once you get to 200, you know, let alone 180, like lots and lots of plants are going to die. And so the whole productivity of all the all the natural like plant productivity of all the ecosystems that all the animals uh, depend on, like that's all going to start dying. So you'd be you'd start to be afraid if we're taking CO2 to the atmosphere. The other thing you'd be afraid of is if we take it out of the atmosphere, is it going to get colder? Because you think about human beings historically we're very, very worried about the cold. We are not, our bodies are not well adapted to the cold. We are, I was talking with Dr. Patrick Moore yesterday, who's one of my favorite people, a co-founder of Greenpeace and a, my favorite ecologist. And he was talking about how human beings evolved from the deep tropics. So way warmer weather than most of us uh, are used to, you know, and we could only go to other places with inventions like clothing and fire and other things. But in terms of our basic bodies, you know, we're, adapted to the warmth, to much warmer place. And so we would be worried that the world is going to become a much less tropical place. It's going to become less warm. And as a consequence, that it's going to become less wet. I mean, that's generally just what happened. So you would just think, so leaving aside anything you knew about the details of climate science, if it was taking CO2 out of the atmosphere, you would be worried. But then if you hear, oh, it's just from these basic facts, it's adding CO2 to the atmosphere, you'd think, oh, well, that's probably going to be pretty good for the plants. And we use a lot of plants because we either eat them directly or the animals we eat eat plants. So that's going to increase our agricultural productivity. And it's also going to just increase the amount of biomass around the world, which is going to mean that all species have more stuff to feed on. That means there's going to be more of them. So if we like certain kinds of trees or animals, like it's easier to preserve them. There's going to be more of them. There's going to, going to probably be more diversity because they'll produce more. The world will become a more tropical place. So 
what's really interesting is that people, before they even hear about the different views on climate science, their expectation is that the world is going to get worse if we add CO2. Why is that? It's not because of the nature of CO2. It's because of the religious dogma that impacting nature is bad. It's impacting nature is viewed as immoral. It's just wrong for us to impact things. And it's viewed as inevitably self-destructive. So somehow it's going to come bite us in the future. It's going to wreck the delicate balance, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's this prejudice against human impact that prevents us from seeing that there is very little possibility that CO2 is a catastrophic byproduct if any possibility, because for sure it's making the plant greener, and that's very well documented, and making the planet warmer, more tropical, because if you study how warming works at all, it works closer to the poles. It doesn't warm the equator a lot. It warms the poles more, and it war so it warms places, the coldest places in the world that we want to be more warm, and it warms more at night when we want it to be more warm, and it warms more in the winter. So if you learn that the world is becoming a more tropical place, you would think that's a desirable thing. Most people will like that. The only thing you could possibly be concerned about is, is there some way that the warmth is so much or that there's some trajectory of CO2 that's so much that it's just gonna become way warmer than our tropical ancestors had. But then if you look at the nature of it, at the effect, I mean, if you just look at the history of the planet, CO2 levels used to be 15 times higher than they are today in Fahrenheit, which I used, temperatures 25 degrees warmer. And life was incredibly productive at those times and the planet didn't burn up. So if you know that, we have no way, even if we wanted to, of even getting one third of the way to what CO2 levels used to be. Like we have no way of doing that. And then you think, so how could it be that they CO2 could warm things that much? And then you look at how CO2 works in isolation, you see it's what's called a logarithmic uh, it has a logarithmic effect, which is, you can think of it as a decelerating effect, which basically means each new molecule of CO2 adds less warmth than the last one. So you keep adding, so somebody uses the analogy of like, you know, you paint a barn and you're painting it red. And like the first coat of paint is like, you know, you make it, it's like a little red and then you can make it redder, but after a while it stops, it doesn't become much redder because it's already pretty red. And that's basically how CO2 works. It's like every new coat of it or every new amount of it, it warms some, but it warms less than the last. So it's how could a, deceler a, a warming gas with a decelerating effect that has been 15 times higher in the future uh, and life has thrived with 25 degrees warmer temperature, how could that possibly be a catastrophe for a species that is by far the most adaptable in history because billions of people have machine power that they can thrive in any climate. How could that possibly be a catastrophe? The only way you can think that is if you do not recognize how good human beings make the planet, that the planet is naturally dynamic, deficient, dangerous, and deficient, and that human productivity using machine power makes it, it better. You can only believe this if you have this dogma that the planet is perfect, that any change to it is immoral and disastrous, but that's a religion. That is not science at all. And it is the most irrational, I'm not any religion, but that is the most irrational religion I have ever heard of. Uh, I mean, a religion that says that for human beings to change nature is wrong and inevitably self-destructive because the basic fact is that changing nature is how we survive. And when I was 18 years old, I learned something that 
changed my life ever since. And it was that the core of the modern environmental movement is that impacting nature is immoral. That's one. And two is that human beings survive and flourish by impacting nature. So that modern environmental movement is against the key activity of human survival and flourishing. That means it's an anti-human movement. And I hated it ever since. I didn't know anything about energy back then, but I knew that if you're against impacting nature, there's something very deeply wrong because human beings survive by impacting nature. Now we want to do it intelligently. Some impacts are negative, but that's what we generally do uh, under freedom. And overall, that's what we've done. That's why the world is so good. So this whole climate catastrophe movement is a deeply religious and anti-human movement. It's not a scientific movement. There are There's a lot of room for discussion about how much warming will occur with how much CO2, but I don't think there's any room for discussion about this idea that there's a catastrophe that would justify uh, taking away the energy of billions of people. I consider that an incredibly bizarre position if you are aware of the facts of how good fossil fuels make the world. Right. And, and I've got a colleague, I've, I've been studying the climate uh, issue for about 13 years now um, as a volunteer. Um, no, no funding, so I'm not attached to anything. I just go off the science. Um, and I won't go into the details now, but we know that in Australia, for example, the temperatures today are cooler than they were in the 1880s and 1890s. And I, I could rattle off so many different, different forms of that. So we haven't got a problem with temperature. We know that the temperature is doing this. We know that rainfall is doing that on longer cycles. We know that so many things are just cyclical in nature. But I have a colleague who has amassed, he's very, very bright, uh, and, and he uses, he's fantastic on computers. He has legally ad, uh, ad, accumulated 24,000 data sets from around the world. Um, and, and he, most of them are about climate, some are about energy. And, and he's, a, he's a phenomenal brain. But there is no evidence anywhere that carbon dioxide from human activity is affecting the climate and needs to be cut. And I've asked our CSIRO, which is equivalent to your NASA Goddard Institute of Space Studies combined with NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And I've asked them as a senator to present me with the empirical evidence showing anything unprecedented in climate over the last 10,000 years. And they came back and said they gave us one paper, Alex, after 50 years of so-called research. They gave us one paper. We ripped that to shreds in no time. And, and other people around the world have torn it to shreds. So they tried to say that temperatures today are unprecedented. And then they admitted to us, no, they're not. So the whole global warming scam is, as you said, a religion based on a desire to control. And what they've shown and what they've admitted is that today's temperatures are not unprecedented. And the temperature well, well, record is like this. Yes, yeah, so I just want to sort of put situate my own position here. So, I mean, my, my main position is that the climate catastrophe movement is a religious and unscientific movement. But what I'm, I just want to emphasize that the, the morality of using fossil fuels, of using more and more fossil fuels going forward, does not depend on them having zero impact on climate. I think it's very hard to know, certainly if you're a layman, what's going on, because there's so much distortion and there's so much of an assumption that, of course, CO2 must have a big impact. After all, it's un, we, we're putting an unnatural amount. But even if we are causing a significant warming, uh, particularly because you know it's a decelerating function, that is no reason at all 
to stop using fossil fuels and empowering the human race. So I just want to, sometimes people get into the climate issue and they act like the case for fossil fuels depends on zero or little impact of fossil fuels on climate. And it, it does not because we can use the fossil fuels to make any climate safer as long as we were free to use fossil fuels and get machine power. And if we're not free, then any climate, including the supposedly perfect natural climate, is dangerous and unlivable. Thank you for, for drawing our, our attention to that distinction. Um, if it gets warmer, machines are useful. If it gets cooler, machines are useful. And excuse me, I, I have never found anywhere and no one has produced anywhere on this planet evidence showing that human carbon dioxide from the use of hydrocarbon fuels needs to be cut. Having said that, the um, we need to use these machines and, in, and, and to, to improve our lives and that will help us with any climate that's warming. But in fact, just to finish or off- cooling, which would be much worse. Correct, correct. Cooling would be far worse. But if we could affect Earth's thermostat, and we can't, but if we could, we would raise the temperature. Because past, warming, past warmer temperatures on this planet have been labeled by scientists as climate optimums because they were beneficial for civilization, for humans, and for the, for the planet. Uh, and because they're naturally. more distributed, I think it's a really important point that you never hear about, even though I think basically every climate scientist agrees with it, that the warming, the warming gets distributed more in the colder places. So the planet becomes more tropical. It's not that the tropics become super hot. It's that the planet becomes more like, you know, ultimately you get palm trees growing, uh, you know, at the poles, which is we even have that, I think, going back not too far. You have, you know, tree samples and, and whatnot in, in the not too distant past, but let alone the distant past where the world was just totally ice free. It was a very lush place and we're not going to get anywhere near there and we have no ability to if we want to do. But it's important that when before this anti-human bias, everyone thought, yeah, of course we want a warmer planet. I, I, I would love to see a record of even five people who ever said 200 years ago or more, the planet should be cooler. Maybe it's possible, but uh, you know, Arrhenius is the uh, one of the original um, researchers surrounding the greenhouse effects, Svante Arrhenius. You know, in some of his stuff, he talks about how uh, quite optimistically about what it, how beneficial it'll be. And he dramatically uh, overestimated how much warming would occur, but he uh, but he thought it would be a good thing because he was on a basically pro-human idea. He was looking at the planet as, I want this to be the best possible place for human beings to live, and that includes other life can live as well. And of course he thought, yeah, I would like the planet to be more tropical versus more cold ice desert. Yes, and, and as I was saying, if we could choose the thermostat setting, we would raise the temperature of the Earth. If we could choose the uh, CO2 level setting, we would increase the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And, and we do know that in the current atmosphere that we have in the Earth, it's about 550 years old, um, the levels of carbon dioxide were up to 130 times what they are now. And, and in relatively recent wait, wait. times on our planet- Wait, 130? That sounds yes. wrong. 130 no, no. times? Yes, 7% carbon dioxide, 7%. Yeah, I can I can send you the link if you want. Okay. Well, I, yeah. I mean, that does. That, okay. I mean, no, nothing really depends on that. But yeah, I would be curious okay, about no. that because my my understanding is something like seven thousand parts per million, which is that's not seven percent. But yeah, send it. Um, but yeah, my, yeah, I mean, my view is yeah, certainly the 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 utility of knowing 
that CO2 levels used to be a lot higher. It, it has a lot of utility because it, it would be different if we had never, we were at a threshold of CO2 that had never been exceeded versus if you know, oh, it's been 15 times higher than it was today. I mean, there are other variables that are different, but clearly this is not something where, oh, the planet burns up the oceans, but nothing like, nothing like that happens. In general, life flourishes. The only thing, so the only thing I think you could be legitimately concerned about, but it has to be a pretty small concern in the scheme of things is, will warming cause sea level rise that will be inconveniently fast? And I don't think there's evidence that it is at all, but you could at least hypothetically be concerned about that with warming. But you have to recognize 110 million people today live below sea level right now. So if you have a machine powered world, you can live underwater in effect, like the people do in the Netherlands. So we have all sorts of ways of coping. So the idea that sea level rise is a reason to disempower the world it's just, it makes no sense at all. And, and the way I think it may be a helpful point about how irrational movements, sometimes religion, sometimes other irrational movements, the way they work is they sometimes invoke human concerns, even though their goal is not to benefit human life. So for example, maybe some people find this controversial, but like the animal anti-animal testing movement, like that that's a movement. So, you know, there are scientists who are against animal testing. And I'm sure there are certain cases where animal testing is used where it's not needed, but I think it's unequivocal that animal testing has had tremendous benefits in terms of testing different things and benefiting humans. People who are against animal testing, it's ultimately a moral issue. They think it is inherently wrong to kill animals, even if it benefits human life. So they have a standard that says either the animals are more valuable than humans or the animals are somehow equal to humans. But if they're equal to humans, then you need to sacrifice. So it's still anti-human. It's, it's still... Uh, harming your life. But then some of those people sometimes say, well, you know what? It's actually like animal testing is not even necessary. Like it's so convenient that there's no animal testing ever necessary. And they come up with these things. Oh, it's not necessary. It's, no, it's no, it's your religion says it's wrong. And you're looking for a rationalization of why it's bad. And you can think of the climate catastrophe movement in the same way. They think it's morally wrong to have any impact on climate, but they know that if they just said that, it wouldn't really appeal to many people. So they try to come up with these scenarios. Well, well, if we do the wrong thing, we're going to cause this flood and it's going to get too hot and it's going to cause this. So they come up with all these human concerns of you know too much heat and flooding and drought, but they're just used as, ex uh, they're like bait to get us to agree with their anti-human, anti-impact morality. Because if they actually cared about protecting people from floods, they would be all for using more fossil fuels so that you could actually produce flood protection like levees and dams. How are you gonna protect someone in flood in Bangladesh by opposing fossil fuels today? Like that's not even something that's practical. What is the climate gonna magically change dramatically and never cause a flood? Like nothing resembling that, even if you could reduce the emissions. But so the people who are who are saying, oh, I, I hate fossil fuels because I'm concerned about flooding. Anyone who knows the facts, there are a lot of people who are just ignorant, like that is a non-starter. It's like saying, and I have another example I think about is in India. If you think about, oh, I hate fossil fuels because it makes India too hot. Like it made India go from 118 to 120. And your solution is make, go back to 118? No, the solution is get them an air conditioner. That's what a pro-human focus is. It's figuring out how to actually improve human life, how to actually alleviate these concerns, not use these concerns and, and 
um, manipulate and misrepresent these concerns to attack the very thing that alleviates them, namely fossil fuels. Right. So, so let's we, we agree there. Um, so let's look at the solutions they propose. The solutions they propose are to cut the use of hydrocarbon fuels, but we can still make um, steel and iron. You know, that's no problem. We'll just turn a blind eye to that for a minute. But they want to cut the use of hydrocarbon fuels for transportation, for lighting, heating, etc. Mm -hmm. And what they want us to do is to use intermittent energy sources that are now that are taking us back to being dependent on nature, solar and wind. And, and your figure 2.2 here is, is something that people should, should be aware of. With natural gas, there is 5.2 tons of, let me just see, yeah, 5.2 tons of steel required to produce a megawatt of power. With coal, there is 35.3 tons of steel required to produce a megawatt of power. With wind, there is 542 tons of iron and steel to produce a megawatt of power. That straight away tells me that the consumption of resources to make wind power is astronomical. It straight away tells me that it will never, ever compete with coal or gas or, or nuclear because the energy density is just so damn low. You cannot possibly build enough of these things to power what we need. And so, uh, so I wanted to talk about, or want you to talk about energy density, please, because I think that is a key thing. Yeah, I think it's, it's a key thing, although I wouldn't agree. I think the issue, so there's the issue, the, the two big issues that come up with the, what you can call preferred renewables, solar and wind. And it's interesting why they're preferred to hydro, because hydro, is actually quite dense and has a track record of producing electricity, like at least in certain locations at low cost. And I think that just to not keep you in suspense, the reason is because hydro is, con is, is conceived of as having a lot of impact on nature and solar and wind aren't, which is not at all true factually, but it's the, the point sure. is for the religion, it's just the appearance of it. So it's just the idea of, oh, it's wrong to dam a river. You're going to interfere with the free flow of the river and the salmon are going to have to move. And that's just morally wrong. So even if it could you know, save the lives, improve the lives of people, say, in Congo. I mean, in Africa, there are all these places where you could build hydroelectric dams, and it's criminal. I mean, criminal, obscene how people in the Western world are actually actively opposing uh, the building of dams. But if you, so if you take the unreliable renewables, I call them unreliables, solar and wind, the two problems are, one is the diluteness problem, which you were alluding to with. They're not, they're dealing with a flow of energy that's very, low density. So it doesn't have much energy, you know, like flowing to a given portion of the earth versus something like oil has a huge amount of energy compressed in a very small space. So all things be equal, it takes a lot more resources, including land, to harness something dilute than it takes to harness something concentrated. So that's one big uh, strike against it. I think the biggest strike, though, by far, is the intermittent character of it, the unreliable character, the fact that you know, solar and wind, they don't give us energy most of the time. They, you know, even with sunlight, I mean, it's not even the majority of the time in terms of giving you enough sunlight to be meaningful in most places. And so this is very different from how the energy that we're used to works. The energy we're used to is highly controllable. 
we can we can access it whenever we want and we can access it in the quantity that we want. So if we have, let's say, natural gas, we have enough natural gas stored so that whatever the demand is, we can go up and we can go down and we can stay the same and we can do anything. We basically do it 24 seven, 365. So the world as we know it, the machine driven world as we know it, depends on reliable uh, energy, including reliable electricity. But it's important that actually most energy is not electricity. Electricity is something like 25% of the world's energy. Uh, a lot of the world's energy is using fossil fuels for transportation fuel, using mostly fossil fuels for industrial heat, uh, things like steel making and cement making, and then also using a lot of fossil fuels, particularly natural gas, for residential heat. And the reason is it's used for those is because those processes are far more cost effective than using any form of electricity. It's just more cost effective to burn the fossil fuels directly, say, to make steel than it is usually to use uh, electricity from any form, including low-cost electricity uh, from fossil fuels. But so if we're if we're talking about even solar and wind, we're talking about only electricity. But the point is, even there, they don't provide reliable electricity anywhere in the world. So when you hear about people using solar and wind, you kind of think, oh yeah, they're using solar and wind in the same way they use coal or gas. It's not true. They only use solar and wind as an unreliable supplement to the reliable fuels. So when you see like so X places using X amount of solar, what's happening is, yeah, when the sun shines, so let's just take Germany, let's, to simplify, just say they're using natural gas as a bunch of their power. They're using coal and still some nuclear, but let's just say they're using natural gas. What happens is when the sun happens to shine, and in Germany, they've spent all this money on solar panels, even though it doesn't shine very much. So when it happens to shine, then what happens? Then they dip down the use of natural gas uh, to allow for the sun, you know, to generate some of the machine food in effect. And then when the sun sets or when a cloud comes, then the natural gas goes up. But the natural gas is doing most of the work. And in fact, if you know anything about how engines work, imagine this was a car engine. And every time the sun shone, the car engine went down. And then every time it didn't shine, it went up a little bit. That's like stop and go traffic. So it's actually very inefficient. It's a very inefficient way to use the natural gas to have this unreliable supplement. This is one reason why when I talk to utility executives and I say, if there were no subsidies or mandates, how much solar and wind would you use? And they say zero, because it's such a pain to deal with an unreliable supplement. It's, it's, it's exactly like if you have an office and there's one temp agency that says to you, hey, we can give you reliable workers who are going to come to work 40 hours a week. And another temp agency says, we're going to give you unreliable workers and they're going to come whenever they feel like it. And you're like, yeah, but I need, I need reliable workers because I need to be able to do the work all the time. And what good is it if they come in whenever they feel like it? Sometimes there'll be too many and sometimes there'll be too few. So I still have to pay all the reliable workers and then I have to pay your unreliable workers. So even if you charged half as much for the unreliable workers, it's not replacing my costs. It's always adding to my costs. And this is exactly what happens with solar and wind. They don't replace the cost of the fossil fuel or nuclear infrastructure, they add to the cost. And there's this incredible accounting scam where you hear about, oh, solar is cheaper, and like, et cetera. But they're not talking about a replacement cost. They're talking about an additional cost. So they're saying like, I'm, I'm making these solar panels, they only cost this much, but they're not replacing the natural gas infrastructure. And in fact, they're making it, you use it inefficiently through the stop and go traffic. And also if you're, if you're cycling up your power plants, sometimes you turn them on and off to accommodate the sun and the wind, you actually, it's debilitating to them. So you're actually wearing them out quickly. Like if you drive your car irresponsibly, you wear it out quickly. So these are not, the key is they're not replacements. 
they're at best supplements and they're usually just useless and wasteful duplication. And that's why whenever solar and wind are used, they add costs to electricity on the grid rather than subtract them. So if you understand that these are always added costs, not replacement costs, that helps you sort through a lot of the fraud. And it really is fraud. And it's really an embarrassment the way even the energy industry portrays this. They're just all the time saying, oh, solar is cheap, wind is cheap. And Michael Schellenberger, one of my favorite energy commentators, the author of the new book, Apocalypse Never, which is a very valuable book, like he has a good article that says, if solar and wind are so cheap, basically why is electricity so expensive whenever they're used? And the reason is because they are parasites that add costs to the grid. They don't replace the costs of the grid. And there is no demonstrated potential whatsoever for them to replace a reliable grid on a large scale. All this talk of we're going to make enough batteries, we're going to connect enough of them together, and somehow the sun is always shining somewhere. Like These are all fantasies. There's no place in the world that does them, that is actually planning to do this. In reality, solar and wind are just expensive added costs to the grid that are parasites, and for, there is no possibility of them being replaced replacements, even very expensive replacements. So, I mean, if we mandated them as replacements, we'd do something with them, but we don't even, we can't even use these unreliables to make themselves. We cannot use solar panels to make solar panels. We can't use wind turbines to make wind turbines. So the whole making of these parasitical forms of energy is dependent on fossil fuels, particularly oil, which is the best fuel in most cases, uh, for mobility. So the idea when people talk about 100% renewable, mostly solar and wind, even for electricity, and they talk about it for all energy, that is a policy that is equal parts ignorant and genocidal. And so that means you, Joe Biden, like you talking about that is like you are basically saying, I want to kill a whole bunch of Americans. You don't know. And I mean, that guy in particular, I don't want to be political because I'm not even that I'm not a partisan person like some gung-ho Republican or anything. I'm much more pro-freedom than the Republicans or the Democrats are. That's the fundamental uh, issue I have with both parties. But literally this 100% renewable by 2035, talking about 100% renewable by 2050, that is a genocidal policy. And if you want to understand how it has to be ignorant and it's religious, the fact that they exclude nuclear they demand that it's solar and wind, and they're against nuclear. I mean, you're in Australia where they just ban nuclear, so you have that irrationality there, too. But here we criminalize nuclear to just make it almost impossibly expensive to build because we treat it as unsafe, even though it's the safest form of energy ever devised. But the fact that the anti-fossil fuel movement is also the leader of the anti-nuclear sentiment, that shows that they have no interest in replacing fossil fuels with something good. They're just interested in destroying fossil fuels because they think it's wrong to impact the planet and fossil fuels impact the planet. And they think nuclear is bad because nuclear is actually productive. And also they think it's unnatural to split the atom and create you know, a new form of waste, even though we can manage that form of waste very safely, a lot more safely than, say, solar waste. But most people don't know yet about solar waste. But when they do know about solar waste, guess what? The anti-fossil fuel movement, the green movement, they're going to be anti-solar too. So if solar was ever any good on any scale, the anti-impact movement would say it has too much impact. And you already see this, like they're opposed solar panels in the desert, they oppose wind turbines, why? Because they have a lot of impact. And in fact, they have the most impact because they take so many resources and they take up so much space. And they often take up space 
near a lot of really nice species, particularly birds. And that's not my foremost concern, but it is notable that when you try to derive your energy from something that's low density, that needs to be in a certain location in nature, it's a lot like when people need used to feed off trees. You, they need to consume nature to survive. And so if you're using wind turbines, basically you need to consume these huge tracts of land and in effect kill all these you know, very rare birds, in some cases very nice birds like eagles, uh, to do that. So that's not the most important aspect. Uh, the most important aspect is these technologies are not remotely capable of producing reliable, low-cost energy of all the types we need for billions of people. The only thing that can do that is fossil fuels for the foreseeable future. For the foreseeable future, nuclear might be able to if we decriminalize it, but nuclear is declining around the world right now because it's so de decriminalized. So there's no hope of that scaling. I mean, like 2050, there's nothing resembling that. Uh, hydro is limited by location, and even that is opposed by the green movement. So we, if we want to live, we want billions of people to live and to be empowered with machine power, then we need more fossil fuels, not less. That's the moral case for fossil fuels. And fortunately, I'm not, fortunately the CO2 uh, is probably a net benefit, but it's certainly nothing resembling a catastrophe. So that's, that's even better. Well, there, there are a number of important points. Our flourishing as a, as, as a species, and we continue to learn, but our flourishing as a species in the last 170 years has been due to our creativity and due to our systems, improved systems of governance uh, in the 19th century when there was greater freedom. And it's now under, under threat because we are being subject to a lot of control. So the creativity, the freedom that drove that creativity. And then the other thing that I think is a very important factor is the ever decreasing real price of, of electricity and energy. That is a sheer fact until about 20 years ago. And as we discussed at the start, when you decrease the price of energy, you increase the productivity, you increase the wealth, you increase uh, human flourishing. So what they've done, these religious fanatics, what they've done in the last 20 years is, reserve, is reverse that trend and they've artificially increased it. So we've reversed the human productivity, the human, um, the human uh, progress curve completely. And that's going to be very, very bad in the future. So what we need to do is to get away from these mandated religious um, symbols and, and get back to high-density energy, reliable, affordable, environmentally responsible and accessible and, and, and also synchronized so that they're, they're easier to manage. Let's, you know, a quick, just one quick example in the U.S., you know, if you look at the prices of, of coal and certainly natural gas, so the basic raw inputs to what American electricity has been uh, historically, and certainly it, and uranium is not a very big input cost for nuclear, but if you take coal and gas, those have generally gone down in price, particularly gas. So U.S. electricity should have gotten a lot cheaper, yeah. but instead it got dramatically more expensive. And it's because we added the costs of these unreliables. Remember, unreliables don't replace costs. They add costs to the grid. So the US isn't nearly as bad as Germany, which pays three to four times what we do for electricity because they have added so many unreliables. But even then, they're mostly reliables uh, themselves. But it's, it's just really important that were it not for these irrational restrictions on energy, energy would be a lot cheaper in the US and elsewhere. And But another point is that the the anti-impact movement, the green movement, they consider themselves a failure because they've had so little restrictive impact. What they want to do is, because what we've seen is, yeah, prices have increased some, but the scale of energy production has 
has at least increased. So we're producing it in, in many cases at a little bit higher prices, but still prices that billions of people can pay and, and are cost effective for them to pay. And, and more and more people have energy. But what they want to do is they want to dramatically decrease the amount of energy, the amount of machine food that's being used in the world. And again, 3 billion people use virtually no energy. The energy analyst, Robert Bryce, has this great statistic that 3 billion people individually, you know, they their total electricity use is less than his refrigerator uses. So all the electricity that e these individuals live in their lives, these individuals use in their lives is less than his refrigerators. So just think about that. Three billion people have so little machine power, and we have this whole movement that says, let's prevent our crucial source of energy for the billions of people who have it. Let's, let's restrict it for the people who have it, and let's basically completely forbid it to the people yeah. who don't, and let's force them to somehow use unreliables, which we have no idea how to use, uh, let alone people who are much poorer. Immoral and anti-human. Um, and let's, let's talk then about the, the motives. What drives the demonization of hydrocarbon fuels? This liberated humanity from poverty, liberated humanity from ignorance, uh, and, and given us comfort and security. What drives people like Ehrlich, Paul Ehrlich, uh, John Holdren, um, I forgot, is it McKibben? Um, and yeah, Bill Malta. McKibben. Bill McKibben, that's it. What drives these people? And, and Morris Strong, the, the, the creator of global warming and the, and the fermenter of this scam on energy. What drives these people? Well, when I, so I think there are a lot of different motives, but when I look for motives and things, I like to start out with what people say their motives actually are and particularly what their values are. And then I work from there. And with Ehrlich and with McKibben and Holdren, particularly McKibben is maybe the most explicit about this. They say our goal, like our highest value is unchanged nature. So that, like that's, that's, and there's a question of why do they, why is that a value? Because it's such an anti-human value, but they'll say that, like we believe in preserving the earth. You know, McKibben talks about a humbler world and having less impact and making it more natural. He's got this line in his book, The End of Nature, or is, it's in a couple of his books, but he basically talks about how uh, when he looks at the rain today compared to the rain before, he thinks of today's rain as bad, not because it's actually worse for human beings, but because we had some impact on it. And so he calls it a steer, not a deer, right? So steer is something that we've branded. So he thinks that human imprint, that human brand, that makes it ugly, that makes it bad. So their whole, I've talked about this anti-impact movement about the goal of unchanged nature. The leaders of this movement are explicit. That is their goal. We think the perfect planet is the one, basically we think the perfect planet is the one that would exist had human beings never existed. That's the core of their view. And I think that if this seems implausible, I'll bet a lot of people watching this think this in some way. Even when you talk about saving the planet, preserving the planet, it's always about the non-human parts of the planet, saving the environment. It's always about the non-human parts of an environment. So we are viewed as unnatural, environmentally bad, anti-environment. I think that just totally needs to change. But there, so there's this core view that human impact is immoral and that it's inevitably self-destructive. I think the core is just that it's wrong. It's wrong for us to impact nature. And there's a whole bunch of questions of where does that come from? Um, and, but that's, that's their, 
that's an evil enough motive for me. So, but I think one place it comes from, because people might think, so some people, when they learn about the ideal of unchanged nature, when they realize that's what green really means, and they think, I don't want to be green. I don't want to minimize my impact. I want to maximize my well-being. And that means minimizing negative impacts, but maximizing positive impacts. When people realize the real meaning of green, most people say, I don't want anything to do with that. That's like green is a four-letter word to me. But the leaders, they know what green means. So the question is, why would a human find an anti-human set of ideas appealing? That's kind of the psychological mystery I think people run into. And first of all, historically, a lot of humans have found anti-human ideas appealing. If you look at communism, for example, I mean, killing hundreds of million, you know, 100 million plus people, and people found it uh, appealing. You know, Nazism, people found uh, appealing. Now, in those, you could say, well, part of it is maybe, well, they, they thought they would benefit and others wouldn't. And I think with the, the anti-human view, if you think about who is the, an, the anti-impact philosophy, this view that impact is immoral, who is it really directed at? Is it directed at all humans? Well, not really. What it's directed at is the most productive humans, because the most productive people are the ones who have the most impact on Earth. And if you realize that, then you start to see the basis of a motive because it's basically a philosophy that gives you license to hate people who are productive, who are more productive than you. And this is very common, unfortunately, in human affairs, envy, where we are sometimes attracted to philosophies that make people who are actually better than us worse than us. And I think that's a lot of what this does is it makes you feel like, oh, these people who have achieved these things and they're rich and successful and maybe even they seem happy, like they're not any good. I'm good because I, I'm opposing them. Like this person who runs a coal plant and provides all this, they're not a good person. I'm a good person for shutting down the coal plant. Now, well, what are you doing? You're just destroying something. You don't know, but, but I'm preserving the earth. I'm being green. So it basically says that doing nothing is the highest virtue. And I think that has appeal to people, but particularly if you get to condemn people who are better. It's like a lot of motives of anti-human ideas come from the license to condemn people who are better. I think a parallel is why do we have this condemnation in the US? Actually, I guess there's a tall poppy thing in Australia, which is interesting. But um, you know, in the US, we've had this movement in the last 15 or 10 years or so about the uh, 1% and the idea, you know, the 1% are bad. And there's always some plausible thing to it, like, oh, well, certain members of the 1% didn't earn it. So, but obviously, certain members of the 1% did earn it. I mean, if you think about what Jeff Bezos has achieved with Amazon and how much that has helped us in terms of being able to get valuable things in our lives very quickly, more affordably. It's unbelievable. Of course, that guy deserves a trillion dollars. Like, without that kind of achievement, I mean, it's and he doesn't have a trillion dollars yet, but if he had a trillion dollars, I wouldn't have an issue. Or what Steve Jobs did at Apple in terms of turning around that company from near bankruptcy to being the most innovative company in the world, probably, and inventing all these things that sometimes we abuse, but are just amazing tools in terms of what they give us. So how could you possibly have a philosophy that just blanket condemns the 1%? Well, it's, and how could people buy into that? Well, part of it is people like the idea that people who have achieved more some people like this are somehow worse. And I think as individuals, we have to be on the lookout for these kinds of negative motives and for adopting philosophies that make us feel superior 
or less inferior versus looking for philosophies that are true and that are actually good for all humans. Right, and, and, and I noticed that you, you rarely use any political language. You don't talk about Democrats or Republicans. You've mentioned each party once and just together. Um, but I, I, I detest the, the discussion between left and right because that's meaningless. Yeah. What I do is to talk about freedom versus control. I agree. And, and that, yeah. that seems to be the fundamental problem of the human condition, the ego, the fear-based control element of people. And we have, I think, two groups of people running this. We have the Morris Strongs, he, he died in 2015, and he, he concocted, he fabricated this global warming scare, and, 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 and he did a masterly job. The guy was incredibly bright, incredibly uh, effective networker, able to marshal people. He, he, he knows what drives people. He knows how to pull people's strings. He knows how to manipulate leaders. Because leaders of nations, people tend to look up to them. But they're bloody hopeless, most of them. They're, they're, they're the same sheepish people that, that thrive throughout humanity because we all tend to be sheep at times and, and kowtow to authority. The leaders of many countries are afraid to stand up and call things out. They wouldn't say what you're saying. They wouldn't say what I say, most of them. Vaclav uh, Klaus in Czechoslovakia would. But the point I'm getting to is that they're, most humans are vulnerable to, to herd mentality. And so once you understand how to control that, which the Morris Strongs did, then that, that's easy. But the other person, the other group of people, I think, Alex, are the, the McKibbins, the Ehrlichs, the, Hol the Holdrens, who then follow through and they have what you said. So I think there are two groups of people. Um, they're, they're, the, they're the people who have the envy and the guilt and the demonization of anyone who's successful versus the Morris Strongs who want to control things. Fortunately, there aren't too many Morris Strongs. Yeah, there's so like the priests and the kings, kind of. Yes. Or, you know, and uh, I'm a huge fan of Ayn Rand, and she had this term that she used, and actually a colleague of hers, Nathaniel Brandon, I think might have coined it. It was called, she called it Attila and the Witch Doctor. And it was all about how you always had this kind of mystic, and I do think of the modern environmental movement as mystical, but it's basically saying, oh, I'm offering you this higher path. And like, I, you know, and then that gives license to uh, the dictator. And, it, and part of it is it, it just, it's not scientific. It makes people take everything on faith. And so they're looking for some authority to tell them what to do. And the king is like, great, I'll step in. I'll take that divine uh, right of kings. And so there's, and part of what they trade on is fear. Like if you don't do it, they say, we're gonna cause uh, a, a catastrophe. So my, my own focus as a philosopher is I'm focused on the more priests or the, you know, the witch doctor types. Like I'm focused on their ideas and offering a pro-human alternative to their ideas. Cause I think of them as they have a, I use the term framework a lot. They have a framework, which is like a starting structure of ideas. And their two basic ideas are that human impact on nature is immoral and that human impact on nature is inevitably self-destructive because it, it disrupts a perfect planet. And so my basic premise is that morality means advancing human flourishing and that the planet is imperfect and needs to be dramatically transformed and improved. And so that, that, I call that the human flourishing framework. And I think that fundamentally, most people, once they learn the human flourishing framework, it's much more appealing because you recognize, as you've talked about, that you get for human beings can live to their highest potential, which includes having a great relationship with the natural world. So you can, you can have it all versus the anti-impact approach. Not only do humans get harmed, but you're certainly not having any kind of good relationship with nature 
if you're completely unproductive and uh, disempowered, you get to live in filth and in poverty, which is the natural state of things. So it's, it's really at the core, what is your basic framework for looking at the world? And do you define good as human flourishing or do you define it as unchanged nature? And do you think of the planet as perfect until we impact it or imperfect and we need to impact it a lot? That's, that's how I see the core of all of this. Yes, um, that, that's a wonderful summary. Perhaps if we, if we could just talk on a, on a few minor topics before. Sure, we and I, I, I have to leave in about ten minutes, so okay. I'll be I'll be brief in my answers. But these have been really great questions, so I really appreciate many many of the um, leaders, even of hydrocarbon companies, oil, gas, coal. They're very woke and they're very weak. They they won't stand up. No, I'm I'm, I'm talking seriously. That's I can. Woke and weak. I never heard that. That's a good juxtaposition. They're very, um, they're, they're, they're cowards. They won't stand up for their own own companies, their own employees, their own shareholders. But more importantly, they don't even understand what you're talking about, and they won't stand up for humanity. But let's let's celebrate. Well, their products, but I don't. I mean, I I think it's true of some, but also they're products of the same what I would call knowledge system as everyone else. So the fact that you know how to produce hydrocarbons with efficiency does not mean that you understand why hydrocarbons are good or how to think about the relationship between human beings and the rest of nature. And the younger you go, the more they've been brought up in this anti-impact framework where they just think, yeah, it's wrong for us to impact things. We've got to minimize our impact. And if we impact things too much, then the whole earth is going to bite us. Like they're, well, they're brought up in that religion. And so part of what I try to, I don't, I don't so much look at it as, oh, you guys, it was so obvious what was true and what you should have said. It's more like, no, but now that I explain it to you, you should be able to see the truth and communicate it to others. And if you think of it as, you should think of it as you're making the world a better and better place to live and you have a moral obligation. And I think a fiduciary obligation to say that proudly. And that's unfortunately very rare. Unfortunately, um, your argument applies to most people, but to people in, in hydrocarbon companies, many of them actually talk to me, pull me aside and say, keep yeah. going, you did a wonderful job. I believe in what you're saying. I know this is crap, but then they'll be outside right. speaking up the same people. Yeah, and now I think the only, the only excuse for that is if you feel like you don't have the right words, but then you should come to somebody like me and I'll yeah. help you give you the words you need for when you need them. I mean, there, there are others as well, but it's, it's, you can say, I don't feel ready to speak up, so I have to train myself a little bit, but I don't think it's a legitimate position to say, I'm never going to speak up. Particularly right. if you're at a state in life where you've, you, you have enough wealth to survive. I mean, I'm much poorer than most, exe- I mean, basically than all executives, but I mean, my belief is I don't think it's living to not be able to say what you think. Uh, and the more, one of the benefits of, I mean, I, you know, I was used to be actually poor, not that I grew up in a poor environment, but I was just an entrepreneur and I had no money and nobody was subsidizing me. And like, even then I would say what I think, but one of the benefits of being more productive and having more money, like the, I mean, the biggest benefit is having more control, as you mentioned, like more control over my life, but that includes having more autonomy to say what I think and not to worry about the consequences. Now, if you have like a lot of money, that is an incredible ability that you have that you, for your own happiness, but let alone the benefit of everyone else, you should not squander by being silent when I mean, there's, the world depends on people who know saying what's true. And there's not enough of that 
Right. And most people, I, I get this all the time. I never met one person who told me, you know what, Alex, I disagree with you more than I'm willing to say publicly, but everyone says, I agree with you more than I'm willing to say publicly, like all, including people who, who say, you know, who, who endorse climate catastrophe to some degree, they'll like always privately say, yeah, I don't really believe this, but I have to say it. And I just don't believe in living life that way. Well, I, I don't know if you know Mark Morano, but he used to be a star oh, yeah. in Senator James Inhofe's office. And Senator Inhofe just assumed, um, and Mark confirmed this, just assumed that, that uh, this climate stuff was real. And then something triggered him and he, and he started asking questions and started going into the IPCC uh, materials and he realized it was rubbish. And he then, instead of going to vote in favor of the cap and trade carbon dioxide tax in the US Congress, he turned the whole Senate against that. And he saved the carbon tax from coming into your country. And if the Americans had been, had been, um, been lumbered with that carbon dioxide tax, every country on earth would have had it. And that was, that was what stopped it. So one man, by actually questioning things, standing up, speaking up, and then going and building coalitions to stop that, he actually caused the Democrats to turn as well. And so one man, by telling the truth and by speaking and working, saved the whole planet from a really insidious form of control, which would have not only controlled energy use, it would have controlled the way property is done, uh, property, property rights, it would have controlled so many things about how we live our livelihoods. And, and what I can see in your country is you've had people like Al Gore, Obama, Clintons, uh, G.W. Bush, um, basically weak and following this UN parade. In our country, we've had all the prime ministers of recent times. Um, we've had even, even people like Matt Canavan and Barnaby Joyce, who were strong skeptics in climate. When they get to positions of power, they have to buckle under and start speaking the climate crap and the climate catastrophism. So we see Angus Taylor, our minister for science, uh, sorry, for energy in this country, is killing energy, even though he laughs with me at how stupid this climate alarm is. So we've got the treasurer. He's a skeptic as well. But now he's su handing out subsidies to the, the uh, intermittent energy suppliers. And so what we're seeing is these people who know it's rubbish actually helping to demonize hydrocarbon fuels. And so... It just wonders, it seems to me the only form of government that is possible is a minimal form of central government and, a, and decentralized government as much as possible. I just wonder if, if you had any thoughts on that, because we've got to minimize government because government is where things, the UN filters everything through the government and pushes national governments and gets control of key people in the party rooms of, of the main parties. And that's how they do it. And that's how we're getting all this. And then they, then they align people from intermittent energy suppliers with incentives so they come on board because there's something in it for them. So we've got this massive movement all thinking they're doing the right thing, but they have no idea what they're really doing, all because humans in many forms are simply, in many ways, are just afraid of rocking the boat. So somehow we've got to stop people using government to control our lives because that's essentially what's happening. Yeah, so I raise a lot of great points. I'll just make two points. I think one is that, I mean, it's just so crucial to challenge climate catastrophism. And I think what I would emphasize is what you really want to focus on with climate catastrophism, insofar as you're just focusing on the climate piece, is you want to focus on the fact that the livability of climate is better than ever, that we've never had a more livable climate. There's, it, there's too much focus, I think, on 
degrees of change, like how much have the climate conditions changed. But the real key is the livability of the climate. You can focus if you want on the safety of climate. That has never been better. And so that puts the burden on the catastrophist to explain how is something that we're making safe? How is that going to just suddenly become uh, more dangerous? And that th those facts are very available. They're non-disputable. And the more that gets spread, and I'm happy to have had some influence in spreading the facts about climate livability, the more that gets spread, the better. So for example, um, this book I mentioned, Michael Schellenberger came up with this new book, Apocalypse Never. And he's been publicizing the idea that natural disaster deaths have been declining. And that's something that 10 years ago, almost nobody was publicizing. Inder Gokhlani, who's a great guy in the US, uh, he's the one I know who publicized it first, and I learned about it from him. Uh, but I've publicized it a lot. So this idea, you know, I put it as fossil fuels aren't taking a safe climate and making it dangerous. They're taking a, a dangerous climate and making it safe. That's what people need to know. And that doesn't that doesn't depend on like the UN being wrong about this exact thing. I mean, th those things need to be addressed as well. But I think it's really important that people, we challenge climate catastrophism and make the point that the climate is more livable than ever and the world is more livable than ever thanks to fossil fuel machines. That's, that's I think, the key positive. The, the other thing, which is also a positive, is you mentioned government needs to be minimal. I mean, I think we're both very strong advocates of freedom. And I would just think of it as, the government needs to be limited to protecting freedom. So minimal is, is not very precise. I mean, it just means we want less of things. But no, we want, I mean, we want the military, I certainly want the military to be as strong as it needs to be to protect us, but it really needs to be protecting our freedom. So I wouldn't say I want to minimize the military. No, I want to maximize the protection of rights. And so that certain government agencies are necessary, but it's to give me it's to define rights in such a way that leaves every individual free uh, to pursue their own lives and to interact voluntarily with others. And there's a lot to say about that. And if anyone wants to know, I think the best essay on this is The Nature of Government by Ayn Rand. Uh, and, but the founding documents of the U.S. have a lot of good stuff on this. But it's, it's you know, even more than fossil fuels, freedom is the fundamental. I mean, fossil fuels are the fundamental. In a sense, they're fundamental to all our productivity. But the way we get to fossil fuels and the way we can use them to benefit us is if we're free to innovate and then free to act on our uh, ideas. So ultimately, it's all about a battle for freedom. And it's no coincidence that the opponents of fossil fuels have not only a background, but also a current uh, history or current practice of opposing freedom. There's this idea that, you know, of calling the green movement the watermelon movement because it's green on the outside and red on the inside, red as in communistic. And there's a lot of truth to that. But if you think about it, the whole idea that we're destroying the planet is the ultimate pretext for restricting freedom, because it basically says anything we do productively is bad, and so the government gets to control us. And so the people who hate achievement and productivity, that checks a box for them, because it, it, it says it's basically anti-doing anything. And for the people who want control, wow, what could be a greater thing to control than human impact? And for that matter, what could be a greater thing to control than the byproduct of basically every machine in the world, CO2? Like that is the ultimate control. So it's, it's, it's very important. It's an anti-freedom movement. And when we say we're pro-fossil fuels, what we're really pro is the freedom to use fossil fuels. 
We don't want to impose fossil fuels on anyone. We don't have a fetish for fossil fuels. We're not being paid by the fossil fuel industry to say this. I, I give speeches to the industry and I consult with the industry. Like they pay me to give them ideas or to use my messaging. Uh, so, and I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud to work with them, but I knew no one in the industry when I came up with my ideas. Nobody's ever paid me to say anything uh, publicly, but yeah, they need to, they just need to be recognized as they're doing something really good. And, and, but, but it's, it's all as they're doing something good because when people are left free, they're the best producers of energy. So fundamentally it's about freedom and fossil fuels are a product of freedom. And we only want to use them as long as they're the best choice uh, under freedom, but we want to be pro nuclear pro anything, but anti forcing us either to use something we don't want to like solar and wind or forcing us to not use something we want to like fossil fuels and nuclear. Okay, I've got two more questions, and then we'll, we'll okay. wrap up. The one, one question is what some people put to me. Well, we're going to run out of hydrocarbon fuels. What then? Well, wouldn't they, they be happy? Sorry? It's inter interesting because they always have, right, it was a problem when they thought that fossil fuels were causing cooling, and there's a problem when it's <laughs> causing warming, and it's a problem when there's too much, and it's a problem when there's not enough. So it should clue you in on it's not really about these problems there's something they object to. And the thing they object to is billions of people using fossil fuels to impact the planet. That's what, that's, it's the energy of it. It's not some specific problem with the fossil fuels. But I mean, that's a legitimate thing for somebody who, particularly if you don't know much about how economies work or anything like that. I mean, the basic, there's a lot of angles you can take this from, but one is just, okay, well, if we start to run out, then what happens is the price goes up because supply becomes constrained. And then you look for alternatives, whether it's using them more efficiently or you invest more in nuclear, you accelerate. Right? I mean, this is the standard kind of thing. But as a matter of fact, there's so much raw hydrocarbon material in the earth and our ability to get at it is, is ever increasing. So, I mean, generations and generations at least, we can use, you know, as much as we need. Certainly coal is, you know, by far the easiest to get and coal can be converted to uh, gas and it can be converted to liquid fuels if you need to. So there's just no practical issue whatsoever. And we also know we have nuclear energy. Nuclear is great because it's even more concentrated than fossil fuels. It's even more abundant. It's, it has naturally stored energy like fossil fuels. They have stored a lot of energy in a very small space. So we already know about that and we're criminalizing that. There's so much potential there. So there's no... I, I have zero worry about running out of energy. I have all of my worries about running out of freedom. If we don't run out of freedom, we don't run out of energy. Right, and that's that's the core uh, thing that's being assaulted by these these people. They just want to control. Last question. When people talk about caring for our planet, when people talk about caring for humanity, caring for fellow humans, doesn't care ultimately come back to the first step, get the facts? Without getting the facts, we don't know if what we what we um, are pushing is actually beneficial or not. So the first step in caring is getting the facts. Isn't that correct? Yeah, it's it's at least a crucial aspect. And this is, a, I mean, there's a deep moral issue about what's the relationship between intention and effect in morality, and how do you how do you judge things? But what I judge very negatively is when somebody claims to have a certain intention 
and there's very little or no investigation into how to carry out that intention. And sometimes even there's not even investigation into what that intention is. So if you say like, I want to save the planet, wait a second. So do you want to save the planet from human beings? Because that's going to hurt human beings, right? If, if the planet is saved from us, we can't use it, we can't impact it, then that's going to be bad for us. Or do you mean you want to save certain parts of it for human beings? So you overall want to improve the planet for human beings and you want to quote, save certain parts of it. Um, there's a question of why are you the individual one who gets to decide doing the saving versus free people. But you know, that's, you have to be, so it's not just the facts, you have to think about what your actual motive is. And it's really irresponsible to just pick up something from the culture, like save the planet and not think through what exactly is my goal. So the first thing I would say is think through always, what exactly is my goal so that I'm sure it's one that I would actually like to see. Cause there's this idea of be careful what you wish for, cause you might get it. And if you wish for something really vague, it's often really vague that sounds nice, like save the planet. Like if we actually save the planet, we're going to screw the humans and it's just going to be in a, a very inhospitable planet again. So that's one thing. Um, but the other thing that you're mentioning is insofar as you have any kind of good goal to know the means to achieving it, you need to know the facts. So if you say, I want a livable climate, like I don't want to be uh, assaulted by storms and floods and be super vulnerable. Well, you have to know the facts about what leads to a livable climate. Livable climate is a combination of two things, the conditions of the climate and humans adaptability to conditions. And what we find is the thing that matters by far the most is humans adaptability to conditions. If we're adaptable enough, we can thrive or flourish in any climate. If we're not adaptable, we can't flourish in any climate, right? So then if you learn the facts about that, then your preoccupation becomes human adaptability. And then if you have a concern that, well, the fossil fuels that power the machines that make us adaptable, oh, there's a byproduct and that's going to lead to more CO2, then you have to look into the facts, including, okay, CO2 is a fertilizing gas. It's a warming gas. It's a warming gas that decelerates. Planet's been much warmer. CO2 has been way higher. Life flourished. No possibility of catastrophe. Sea level rise is totally manageable. Like you, you, you actually need to look in into these things. But unfortunately, people are not taught to be clear about their goals or about learning the facts about the means to get there. So there's this vague idea of save the planet, which in practice is sort of half pro-human, half anti-human, and it's not differentiated what the goal is. And then it's just this accepting, instead of learning facts, accepting this dogma that impact is inevitably self-destructive. And so assuming that if we use fossil fuels and it has any change on the planet, it must be bad, even though the change the energy does to the planet is incredibly good. And it turns out a lot of the change the CO2 does intentional is good. So yeah, you need to be clear about the goal and be clear about all the relevant facts to uh, achieving the goal. And I think one thing that's nice about, I'm glad you asked that question, because I think once most people are given that as a framework, oh, we need to be clear about the goal. I need to be clear about the facts. I think most people will do that. We're just taught, unfortunately, that to be a good person means to just accept the vague, undefined goals given to us by the society and then accepting the means that they give us. And that there's one perspective on that that I've had for a long time is of history. I look back at history and I think, I don't want to be the person who supported slavery. I certainly don't want to be the person who was complicit in the Holocaust. But how can I avoid doing that? I'm not genetically different from the humans back then who enslaved people, who you know killed people in furnaces. So 
there's a possibility that if I don't do something specific to avoid the things that led people to these irrational things, I myself could participate in something like that today. And really the core of what, of what you need to do is you need to think independently. You need to think independently and then you need a framework. I mean, to really make progress, you need a certain framework. And that includes, I need always wanna be really clear on my goal. And for me, it's always some form of human flourishing. And then I always wanna be clear on the relevant facts to achieving my goal. And I mentioned a key fact is that the planet is imperfect. There are a lot of other relevant facts to achieving a lot of other goals, but I would always just keep in mind, there is no safety in agreeing with the majority of people in your society and even the majority of allegedly intelligent people in your society. And I'll, I'll just come back to that Oxford survey, if, if people are watching this whole thing, that 55% of college-educated adults, European adults, thought that extreme poverty is getting worse even though extreme poverty has declined by a record amount. Like there's, that's the, one of the most important facts in the world and there's complete ignorance among the college educated. So if you, if, you general, if you think about who are the smart people who educated those college educated people or educated their educators and you think those people are the people who are, were told to listen to the scientists, which just basically means listen to the elites, uh, elite intellectuals in society. Like, there is every reason to believe that today's leading minds are incredibly fallible. That doesn't mean don't look for smart people. It means you need to use independent judgment when looking for smart people. You can't go by, oh, this person is prestigious. This person goes, you know, writes for the New York Times or something like that. This person is a Nobel Prize. It has to be, no, this person thinks in a way that I respect. And I look at what is their framework? Is their goal human flourishing? Do they recognize the fact that the planet is imperfect and we need to transform with all the environmental issues? I look for that. And when I look for that, I find really smart people like Patrick Moore who actually care about human life and who actually give me relevant facts. And when I don't, I find people like Michael Mann who said explicitly he thinks the world should have 1 billion people. Someone who thinks the world should have 1 billion people, I'm gonna take advice from him only if I wanna die. <laughs> And speaking of death, um, I just put in this, this figure, Morris Strong, who created or fabricated this global warming scam and led to climate scam, he was also the, the manipulator who put himself in a position where, where the UN formed the United Nations Environmental Program, UNEP, in 1972. He was the first secretary general or the head of the UNEP. One of the things that UNEP did very early on was they banned the use of DDT. As a result of that, and based on contradicting the evidence, by the way, and based on that, 50 million people are estimated to have died. So as well as communism and, and fascist communism in, in uh, fascist socialism in, in Germany, as well as communism in China and, and, uh, and, and Russia, we have the United Nations uh, form of uh, environment and in, in form of genocide, which is killing 50 million people through garbage. Absolute garbage, fabricating stuff. And now they're actually harming billions of people, keeping billions of people back on, on this climate scam and stopping the flourishing of future generations. I mean, this is just absolutely criminal. It is. And the, the DDT is a good example because it shows that this kind of thing is, I, I don't know, I haven't looked into the exact numbers, but I mean, the fundamental thing is DDT was this incredible uh, pesticide and an incredible anti malarial uh, agent. Yes. And really, what's the core of it? 
well, DDT had an impact on nature, so it must be immoral and it must be self-destructive. And so I read a book that says that eggshells are thinner, and so I'm going to ban it. What harm could come from that? And no, the harm that could come from that is DDT radically improved nature. It made Correct. it a safer place for human beings. But to, to see that, you need to be open to the idea that we can improve nature. It goes to the idea the the planet is imperfect and it needs to be dramatically transformed and improved to advance human flourishing. So I, I think so. what I keep trying to stress is so much of this issue is about our framework or our philosophy coming into that, and that determines how we process the facts. And if you come to it from a human flourishing-based framework, then you won't be so surprised how Alex Epstein or Malcolm Roberts can think, I'm proud to be a human, I'm proud to be involved with fossil fuels, because you'll see, it, it makes human life better. What could be better than that? And it clearly does. So uh, I'm going to just quote Thomas Sell, who's an African-American, who's a, a philosopher and an economist. Um, and he says several quotes here. When I was growing up, we were taught the stories of people whose inventions and scientific discoveries had expanded the lives of millions of other people. Today, students are being taught to admire those who complain, denounce and demand. He also said, we are living in an era when sanity is controversial and insanity is just another viewpoint and degeneracy only another lifestyle. The third thing I'm going to quote from him, one of the sad signs of our times is that we have demonized those who produce, subsidized those who refuse to produce and canonized those who complain. And Alex, um, I'm going to hold up this article, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Where can people get it? Uh, the key to oh, winning. Man, that, well, I would just say if anyone wants to reach me about anything, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. That article is, I really like that. That was written before The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, the book. So the book you can get on Amazon. Just search Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. I'm not even sure where we have that essay. If you probably if you search for that, you can find it. But if anyone is interested in contacting me for whatever reason, I, I'm, I'll respond at some point, uh, alex at alexepstein.com. And I want to congratulate you for your book. Uh, my, I, you. I read this book a few years ago. That the, the, um, You've had so many positive reviews of the book, Wall Street Journal, Barron's National Review, Reason, uh, Washington Free Beacon. I'm not trying to sell your book for you, but I think it's, a, it's, it's such a message that I hope many people buy it because this is really so clearly written, so simply written, so factual, and yet it's not dry and boring. It is uplifting. It's a wonderful book because it is about humans and, and restoring a pro-human uh, case for, for, uh, for, for our planet and a pro-planet position as well. Uh, and Alex, um, I think it's important. I, I, I was in the United States. I was living there and, and working there when Ronald Reagan came to power. And whether Reagan's good or bad, I'm not interested. I happen to like the man and admire him. I saw what he did. But what I really liked about that man was that Americans, they've done so much for the world. Not all of it's good, but they've done so much for the world. And I arrived in America when Jimmy Carter was there and the chins were on the chest after, after Watergate and after the Vietnam War and the Iran debacle. And Reagan came in and he just picked the whole country up just by talking common sense and, and giving people some pats on the back and he took America and away America went and when when I saw that I saw a man who was talented and bright we know Reagan was he was demonized for being stupid but that's because they feared him 
But the point I'm getting to is that people flourish when they're in a positive environment. And mate, I just want to thank you. I'm starting to get teary. Thank you because this is such a groundbreaking book and it is such a wonderful case to celebrate because people like you make the world go around, mate. And thank you very, very much for what you've done. Thank you for the clarity of your thought. I have uh, so much respect for your, not just the fact that you think, but the way you think. It's a marvelous, you're, you're a fine example of a human. I'm so proud to be in the same species. Oh, well, 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 thank you. And I think we should just also, again, thank. So I think what both of us are trying to do is we're trying to help people think more clearly about these issues. And part of it is, part of thinking about them more clearly is also recognizing the heroism of the people who are producing everything that's amazing in our lives. So I think of it as I'm helping that indirectly. I'm giving people the clarity in part to appreciate the people who are productive and also to appreciate the freedom that allows the productive people um, to flourish. I really appreciate uh, your comments and I just wanna sort of expand that appreciation to all of the people who are are producing this amazing way of life that we have. And you know, one way to think, I like what you said about Reagan, whom I have mixed opinions on, but the spirit thing is great. I mean, if you look at the movies in the 80s, I, I was born in 1980, so I, I kind of grew up in the 90s. But if you look at the spirit of the 80s, like Back to the Future, you don't have that spirit in a lot of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You don't have that spirit in the US. But I, th I think we could get it, uh, I think we could get it back. But I think if we just think about talking to the human race, like we've done a lot of really good stuff. We've made a really good world and there's a lot more to improve. But let's move forward and improve it let's not at all denounce the core of what makes us good, which is changing the world for the better using fossil fueled machines. Like let's, let's double down on that. Let's not reject that. Let's be proud of what we've done and let's aspire to be even better. you know, life is short and I'm about to be 40 and I know you're older than 40, but like, I really take it, it seriously that like, it's such an opportunity to be alive in this world. And I would, you know, I want to enjoy it as much as I can. And, and I know that if we have the freedom, particularly in this case, the freedom to use fossil fuels, I know that'll be, make it possible for a lot more people to enjoy their lives, particularly if they appreciate fossil fuels and they appreciate the world. Because if you don't appreciate the world you live in, even though it's amazing, you'll be miserable, like Greta Thunberg. I don't mean to pick on her, but it's a perfect thing of she's the most fortunate generation in history but she feels like the worst. And if you feel like a victim and you feel like you live in a malevolent world when you live in the best world, then you can be miserable even when with the greatest opportunity. So there's so much imprisonment in the mind. So part of what we can do is not only advance freedom and advance industry's ability to produce these things, but we can advance the appreciation of what industry does in the world we live in. Because if you talk about opportunity and happiness, that's so much of happiness is being appreciative of and even grateful for the world you live in and all the achievement that it's made. And I think a lot of psychology agrees with that. Unfortunately, they often sanction scaring kids with climate catastrophism and condemning the fossil fuel industry and guilt, all of which are psychologically crippling and based on falsehood. So I think we can give people not only the, you know, the productive ability, the freedom, but also the appreciation of it that's going to allow them to enjoy that, which is really the, the point of it all. Thanks again to Senator Malcolm Roberts for interviewing me. As I've said, it was my favorite interview that I've ever done. 
Uh, we got to cover just a huge range of things from the nature of energy to the superiority of fossil fuels to the nature of climate, including CO2, to the history of the planet. And most importantly, in my view, what's the basic framework by which we are uh, thinking about all these issues and what's the wrong framework that causes people to think about these issues in the wrong way. And then what's the right framework, what I call the human flourishing project for thinking about things in the right way. So hope you enjoyed that. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Sign up for our newsletter at industrialprogress.com to get our weekly Wednesday email and the energy clarity course. Uh, you can follow me on social media. And also, if you like my work and the work of the Center for Industrial Progress, you can support our research and development efforts and our marketing efforts by becoming an accelerator. Go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerator. Hope you enjoyed this bonus episode of Power Hour. I'll be back next week with another great topic and another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.